Uh, good morning. My name is Miguel Centeno. I'm the director of Princeton Institute for International and Regional Studies. This is the second day of our inaugural conference on the state of the world. As I explained yesterday morning, um, there is a, some rationale behind the absurd hubris of actually calling a conference on such a thing. And uh, what we were trying to do was to look at a series of contradictions that we saw in, 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 in global trends. Uh, yesterday, we looked at uh, the conflicts between local, national, and global authorities. And then we looked at the relationship between uh, growth and inequality. Today, the, the, this morning's panel, very appropriately in a building named, in our school named after Woodrow Wilson, we deal with what one of our panelists has called the problem from hell, in that by mutually recognizing the rights of identity groups or identity claims to establish their autonomy and to establish their own set of laws, while at the same time claiming a universality for certain human rights, we might have created a literally unsolvable constitutional and political set of, of problems. Uh, this dilemma is what we're going to address this morning. As we did yesterday, the setup is going to be that the two speakers will address this question. We'll probably take a break around that point. I'm a kind seminar leader. And then we'll come back for comments and uh, questions from the floor, and we'll start a dialogue and hopefully ending by around 12. Uh, with that, let me just introduce the first speaker, uh, Amy Chua from Yale Law School. And she is probably best known for her recent book, World on Fire, How Exporting Free Market Democracy Breeds Ethnic Hatred and Global Instability, recently in paper. And it's available in all major bookstores. Amy. Thanks so much, Miguel. It's a great pleasure and honor for me to be included in this inaugural State of the World Conference uh, with so many illustrious uh, co-participants. Um, um, I'm especially grateful to Miguel for, for tracking me down and inviting me. Um, and thanks also to Susan Bindig and Jane Bielkowski for all their help. I also have to apologize. I have a, uh, I'm going to have to leave early. Um, I'm just in and out. I have a, a huge family reunion in my house at this moment, and they're all angry at me already, so apologies in advance. Um, so I'd like to start by uh, taking you all back to 1989, um, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of the former Soviet Union, the death of communism. As I'm sure many of you remember, at least some of you, a kind of consensus really a, a very much a triumphal consensus emerged at that time, not only in the United States, but to a considerable extent around the world. And that consensus was that markets and democracy, working hand in hand, would transform the world into a community of modernized, productive, peace-loving nations. In the process, ethnic hatred, religious zealotry, and other backward aspects of underdevelopment would somehow be swept away. Unfortunately, if you look at the last 15 years, something very different has happened. Since 1989, we have seen the proliferation of ethnic conflict, intensifying nationalism, fundamentalism, and anti-Americanism, confiscations, expulsions, calls for renationalization, and two genocides of magnitudes unprecedented since the Nazi Holocaust. Why? What happened? Part of the answer, I think, uh, lies in the relationship and increasingly the explosive collision among the three most powerful forces operating in the world today, markets, democracy, and ethnic hatred. And the central thesis of my book is that, contrary to conventional wisdom, 
markets and democracy, at least in the form in which they're currently being promoted, and that's an important caveat, um, but markets and democracy may not be mutually reinforcing in the developing world. On the contrary, in many non-Western countries, markets and democracy may be on a collision course. And the reason for this has to do with a phenomenon that is absolutely pervasive outside the West and yet almost never acknowledged, in fact, often treated as taboo or not politically correct to talk about. This is the phenomenon of what I call market-dominant minorities. And by this term, I mean ethnic minorities who, along with foreign investors, can be expected under market conditions to economically dominate the poor indigenous majorities around them, at least in the near to midterm future. Examples of market-dominant minorities include the Chinese throughout Southeast Asia. Most recently, I think unknown to most people in the United States, ethnic Chinese have literally taken over the economies of Rangoon and Mandalay in Burma. Other examples of market-dominant minorities are Indians throughout East Africa and parts of the Caribbean, the Lebanese in West Africa and parts of the Caribbean, the Ibu in Nigeria, Bamileki in Cameroon, Kikuyu in Kenya, whites in South Africa, whites in Zimbabwe, Croatians in the former Yugoslavia, Jews in post-communist Russia, Tamils in Sri Lanka. The list goes on really strikingly as I try to document in detail. Now, at this point, let me flag a point that um, I hope is obvious to all of you from that list. And this is also why I think this topic shouldn't be uh, taboo. And that is simply that groups can be market dominant for very different reasons, ranging from culture or superior entrepreneurialism and social networks at one extreme, whatever those things mean, to, at the other extreme, a history of apartheid or colonial oppression. So, for example, if, as with whites in South Africa, a small minority uses force to relegate the majority to inferior education and inhumane conditions for over a century, then that minority is likely to be a market-dominant minority. And this has nothing necessarily to do with culture. On the other hand, uh, to be clear, by market dominance, I am not talking about vague ethnic stereotypes. Uh, as we all know, we're on university campuses, ethnic stereotypes are something uh, that we worry a lot about in the United States. But in a way, I'm talking about something more troubling. Um, by market dominance, I'm talking about actual, starkly disproportionate control of major sectors of the economy. So in the Philippines, where my own family's from, uh, the Chinese and in full disclosure, my own family is Chinese, the Chinese make up just 1% of the population but control as much as 60% of the private economy, including all the major airlines and virtually all the major banks and businesses. Similarly, whites in South Africa currently make up roughly 14% of the population, but still, even today, own more than 85% of the best arable land, and at least until very recently, all of South Africa's largest conglomerates. Less well-known, but very typical of parts of Latin America, in Guatemala, a tiny minority of light-skinned elites control almost all of the nation's wealth, while Mayan Indians, nearly 70% of the population, live in abject and, in many cases, illiterate poverty. One final example, I recently spent a good bit of time in Bolivia, and at one point I was having dinner with a wealthy businessman, actually a mining magnate, um, who was the brother of the person who was the president of the country at that time. This is the same president who recently had to flee by helicopter. Um, but this businessman said to me, and this is a direct quote, this is a country where 3% of us run everything. 
politics, culture, and the economy. And 65% of the population have no future. Uh, that was just a few years ago, and I'll say a little bit more in a second about what's happened in Bolivia since then. But it's, again, it's very striking. In Bolivia, this is a country where a majority of the people are Amerindian, uh, principally Quechua and Aymara Indians. The president is or was white, um, spent most of his life in Connecticut, was educated at the University of Chicago, and actually speaks Spanish with an English accent. The phenomenon of market-dominant minorities has a number of very sobering implications for international policy. Most crucially, in developing countries with a market-dominant ethnic minority, markets and democracy will tend to favor not just different people or different classes, but actually different ethnic groups. Markets will magnify the often astounding wealth of the market-dominant minority, while democracy increases the political power of the impoverished indigenous majority. In such circumstances, totally different from what we have here in the United States today, in such circumstances where the rich aren't just rich, but also are seen as belonging to a resented outsider ethnic group, then the pursuit of free market democracy often becomes an engine of catastrophic ethno-nationalism pitting, on the one hand, a poor, frustrated indigenous majority, easily manipulated and aroused by opportunistic uh, demagogic politicians against wealthy outsiders. And these outsiders include both Western foreign investors and these foreigners within. So let me quickly illustrate with the case of Indonesia, which I think is a, just a tragic uh, case. Free market policies in the 80s and 90s led to a situation in which the country's tiny 3% ethnic Chinese minority controlled an astounding 70% of the private economy. Now, um, my economics colleagues, uh, economist colleagues, um, often, and others, often like to attribute this extreme economic dominance of the Chinese on crony capitalism and corruption. So they say, look, uh, if you just had really good, free and fair, uncorrupt markets, then the Chinese wouldn't be so dominant and all these ethnic groups would rise equally. And unfortunately, I think that that is just the easy way out and flies in the face of historical fact. It's important to acknowledge that while certainly a few Chinese, uh, these multi-billionaires in Indonesia, were the recipients of uh, government favors and special monopolies, it's also the case that the Chinese in Southeast Asia are economically dominant at every level of society. Um, so while they control all the major conglomerates and all the billionaires are Chinese, Chinese also dominate petty trading in rural areas and small-scale commerce in urban areas. My point is that most of these Chinese are just middle class and not the recipients of uh, political favors. In any event, the extreme economic dominance of this 3% Chinese minority naturally, understandably, provoked enormous um, widespread, long-suppressed hostility among the indigenous Prabhumi majority. Now, what happens when you democratize under these conditions? Well, the introduction of democracy in 1998, which was hailed with euphoria across the United States, I still remember that, unfortunately produced a violent backlash against both the Chinese and against markets. 5,000 shops and homes of ethnic Chinese were burned and looted, 2,000 people died, and 150 ethnic Chinese women were gang raped. Free and fair elections, in the midst of all this, uh, naturally gave rise to ethnic scapegoating, 
by demagogic politicians who found that the best way to get votes was not by proposing sound, gradual, efficient economic policies, but rather by calling for confiscation of Chinese assets and the establishment of a people's economy that would finally return Indonesia's wealth to its true owners, the Prabumi majority. Now, because of these calls for confiscation and nationalization and the violence, many Chinese Indonesians, including most of the wealthiest, left the country, taking with them massive amounts of Chinese-controlled capital, estimated at between 40 and 100 billion dollars, plunging that country into an economic crisis from which it's still not recovered. So what I argue in the book is that uh, whenever free market democracy is pursued in the presence of a market-dominant ethnic minority, the almost invariable result is backlash. Moreover, this backlash isn't just random, but typically takes one of three very predictable and determinate forms. The first, is a, the first kind of backlash you'll often see is a backlash against markets, targeting the market-dominant minority's wealth, for example, through confiscation. The second kind of backlash is sort of just the opposite. That is a backlash against democracy by forces favorable to the market-dominant minority. The third and most vicious form of backlash is basically majority-supported violence aimed at killing off the hated minority itself. And these three kinds of backlashes have been playing out all over the non-Western world. To, uh, let me, I'm going to give you some illustrations, but it's kind of hard to do this in just uh, a few minutes. Obviously, there are variations, and some cases fit better than others. But to, to illustrate, uh, examples of the first kind of backlash. That is an ethnically targeted anti-market backlash. Well, if we go back to the case of Indonesia, again, I think unknown to most people in the United States, the Indonesian government today is currently sitting on about $58 billion worth of nationalized industrial assets, almost all formerly owned by Chinese tycoons. And these assets are just stagnating. Uh, literally, you have cement factories, automobile factories, conglomerates where the key is just not turned on. Uh, they're just stagnating while unemployment and poverty in Indonesia deepen. But the government is afraid to reprivatize these assets precisely because there is so much hostility among the indigenous majority against Chinese and now also U.S. vultures swooping back in to control the economy. As a result, a frightening 40 million Indonesians today are underemployed or unemployed, uh, obviously making Indonesia a breeding ground for extremist um, and terrorist mobilizations. <clears throat> and Indonesia is just one example of a much broader global pattern. Um, I would say, um, and I know that uh, Professor Powers knows much more about this, but uh, I would actually say that the recent confiscations led by Mugabe in Zimbabwe uh, is another variation on the same phenomenon, that is an ethnically targeted anti-market backlash. Now, people here may balk because I think it's a much easier just to put the blame all on Mugabe, um, and I would certainly join in in the criticism. I mean, this is a megalomaniac who's destroying the economy, driving people to starvation. But I think it's also important to look at the underlying causes. I think it's important to acknowledge that um, Mugabe himself is the product of democracy. He was the hero of the black liberation movement, a master, always a master manipulator of the masses. And he swept to power, landslide victory, in the very closely free and fair elections of 1980. How? By promising to take back the stolen land from the whites. And every time elections have rolled around, he's played the race card. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's particularly, it's important to notice that 
you have the same pattern, which is a very stark market-dominant minority, 1 percent white uh, minority that, you know, controlled until recently 70 percent of the best uh, land, commercial wealth. Um, more also very controversially, other example, I would say that the recent targeting of the three Jewish, Jewish billionaires in Russia is another example, another variation, you know, quite different, but, but same principle. Um, and this has received a lot more press in the UK than in the United States, um, because I guess it's a, a, it's a tricky topic. But in recent years, President Putin has confiscated the media holdings of Boris Berezovsky, Vladimir Guzinski, and most recently Mikhail Khodorkovsky. These are three men known as, you know, loathed as oligarchs. Um, but what doesn't come out so much in the U.S. press is that all three of these men are well known in Russia to be Jewish. And um, I don't think that Putin's arrests himself, I mean, his confiscations himself, have been driven by anti-Semitism. I don't think I, he did not like what these media uh, holdings were saying about him, and he's clearly got autocratic tendencies. Nevertheless, uh, the point is that his arrests and confiscations of these oligarchs were facilitated by the huge amount of latent anti-Semitism uh, in Russia. I mean, there was almost no opposition against those um, confiscations, whereas you saw a lot of it in the United States. Finally, I'm still on the first kind of backlash. Um, perhaps more surprisingly, we're also seeing a growing number of ethnically tinged anti-market movements in parts of Latin America. And I say that this is surprising because Latin America is a developing region that, you know, at least in the last 50 years, a lot of people would say, this is not a region that is really seeing ethnic strife. It's, you get corruption and class conflict, but it's not ethnic because of the mestization, I mean, the huge amount of intermixing between the Spanish and the indigenous women from the start. So you don't have black and white clear categories, rather you have a spectrum. Uh, and so for this reason, conflicts have not been mobilized um, along ethnic lines, at least in the last 50 years. But interestingly, this may be changing with globalization, uh, particularly in countries like Peru, Bolivia, and Ecuador, where indigenous Amerindians still represent an impoverished, long-oppressed and demeaned majority or near majority of the population, we are seeing democracy now fueling ethnically tinged anti-market movements. Um, whereas before, it was sort of fatalism. Nobody wanted to admit to be a, an Indian. I mean, you couldn't mobilize anybody. They'd rather be called a peasant. Now, you're seeing sort of a reversal of this self-hatred. And the rhetoric from indigenous uh, politicians, often incredibly popular, sounds a lot like Robert Mugabe's in Zimbabwe. For example, Bolivia's land belongs to the Aymara and Quechua Indians and not the whites. Or we indigenous peoples are like foreigners in our own lands and the whites should leave the country. And as you may have read in the papers, Bolivia uh, literally exploded last fall, uh, sadly along exactly the lines that I uh, predicted. That is President Gonzalo Sanchez de Lazada, um, who I actually thought had quite good economic policies, frankly, uh, who, as I mentioned, is white and was very pro-U.S., pro-free trade, pro-IMF, pro-privatization, pro-foreign investment, ultimately had to flee for his life uh, by helicopter after weeks of majority-supported Amerindian-led protests and escalating violence that left 80 people dead. Okay, so those were all examples uh, uh, of ethnically targeted backlashes against the market. There's a second kind of backlash, though, which is, again, kind of just the opposite. And that's, uh, that is another kind of possible backlash. And that is because in the contest between an economically powerful, small ethnic minority and a numerically powerful poor majority, the poor majority doesn't always win. Often the money wins. 
Very often the money wins. So instead of a backlash against the market, another likely outcome you could see is a backlash against democracy by forces favorable to the market-dominant minority uh, at the expense of majority will. And examples of this are extremely common. And as sort of as a thought experiment, I would just say that if each of you try to uh, recall in your own heads the world's most horrible, outrageous examples of crony capitalism, I think you will find that every single one of them involved a market-dominant ethnic minority. And there are structural reasons for that, uh, sort of a politically vulnerable outsider minority uh, you know, entering into a symbiotic reliant, uh, alliance with an indigenous politician. So, uh, very quickly, General Suharto in Indonesia. Um, most Americans prefer to forget that, but that was, uh, you know, he was a U.S. darling for, for, for a long time because he was very pro-business, pro-foreign investment. But uh, he, uh, again, had a, a symbiotic relationship with a very small handful of ethnic Chinese cronies um, who kicked back profits to him. Um, but generally, he allowed the Chinese in that country to make money. And again, most of those Chinese were not the recipients of political favors. Other examples of outrageous crony capitalism, the Marcoses in the Philippines, uh, Imelda and Ferdinand. Um, I don't know if this is known to most Americans, but Marcos's dictatorship was extremely Chinese-friendly. Uh, my own family, extended family members in the Philippines, and I want to distance myself from them because my father was the black sheep in the family and, you know, uh, moved over here. But my extended family in the Philippines, they all look back nostalgically to the Marcos era, despite the terrible record. And that's because um, uh, they were pretty good times for the Chinese. Amelda Marcos, it wasn't free. Amelda Marcos made herself a silent partner in every major Chinese corporation. Um, and she, uh, every time Imelda's birthday came around, all the Chinese firms had to pay her birthday presents. Um, and sometimes her birthday would come around once, twice, three times a year. But she, <laughs> but the Chinese didn't mind because once they realized that their wealth wasn't going to be confiscated, and they didn't have to pay taxes anyway, uh, and that their wealth wasn't going to be broadly redistributed, they were actually okay with it. Um, other examples of um, crony capitalism involving a market-dominant minority, Kenya. President Daniel Arap Moy's very corrupt, long regime in Kenya that just finally came to an end, by the end, again, was very closely bound up with a small handful of Indian tycoons. And finally, Sierra Leone. I think Sierra Leone is uh, too depressing for most people to think about, but when we do, uh, in the papers at least, you think about rebels chopping off limbs. But if you ask yourself, what did Sierra Leone look like before the rebels took over, you find a pattern that is characteristic of West Africa, and that is President Siaka Stevens, again, an indigenous African president who uh, departed uh, from democracy, that is, went towards dictatorship and, and entered again into a symbiotic alliance with a very small cohort of enormously wealthy Lebanese businessmen who controlled the diamond industry. So those are all examples of the second kind of backlash. Uh, very briefly, since I'm, this is the biggest topic, but also I'm going to compact this the most. Um, I argue um, that, and I'm hesitant to do this because there are actually m many uh, much better experts on this, but I stand by this. I argue that both the Rwandan and the former Yugoslavian genocides were in part and I really want to stress in part there because obviously there were so many other dynamics, so many complex dynamics going on in both of those cases. But I do think that they were both in part manifestations of this third kind of backlash that I described, which is basically ethnic cleansing targeting a starkly, disproportionately wealthy minority. Um, now, these, there are in ways, 
In both cases, the model doesn't fit perfectly. In Rwanda, for example, there were really no markets, so it's not really a market-dominant minority. Um, but it is still striking that the Tutsi in Rwanda were a 14 percent minority who for hundreds of years had economically and politically dominated the 80 percent Hutus, in part because the Belgians uh, um, uh, favored the Tutsis and also sort of carved those ethnic identities into stone with these ethnic identity cards. Uh, and for the long-oppressed, humiliated Hutu majority, democracy, in quotes, was all about revenge. And the killings uh, were, in many ways, majority supported and majority executed. Yugoslavia is even more complicated, although I think the market-dominant part fits better. Um, but I think here it's important to say that, uh, to kind of reiterate what I'm not saying, I'm certainly not trying to say that to reduce uh, ethnic conflict and these genocides to all economic causes. I mean, that would just be absurd, right? These, in both these cases, you've had ethnic hatreds and enmities that go back for, you know, maybe millennia. Um, but you still see the same among many other patterns. Uh, one of those dynamics is the fact that the northern groups, Croatians and Slovenes, were much more Europeanized and were always a starkly market-dominant uh, minority compared to the much more populous um, uh, and poor serves. And uh, again, democracy swept to power a demagogue who played up uh, these differences, who incited hatred, and, and got a lot of mileage out of that. And uh, one quotation is particularly uh, telling, I think, from Milosevic, um, alludes to this piece of it. He was um, calling on uh, Serbs to fight. He said, if we must fight, then my God, we will fight. And I hope they will not be so crazy as to fight against us. Because if we don't know how to work well or, or to do business, at least we know how to fight well. Now, um, okay, let me shift gears. What does all this have to do with the United States? Um, uh, how do we fit into this picture? And I have two answers, and they're both sobering. One, first, we have been, and I think we still are, the principal exporters of markets and democracy, sometimes with the best of intentions. And I'll have more to say about this and what I think we should do going forward in a moment. But there's a second point about the United States, um, and here I really need to shift gears. So far in my comments this morning, I have focused on dynamics within nations. But in the final part of my book, um, I suggest by analogy that at the world level, the United States itself has come to be perceived as a kind of global market-dominant minority, wielding wildly disproportionate economic power relative to our size and numbers. Just 4% of the world's population, we are seen everywhere as the principal engine and the principal beneficiary of global capitalism. And in part, I have to stress in part again, as a result, the United States has become the object of mass, popular, again, often demagogue-fueled uh, resentment and hatred of the same kind that's directed at so many other market-dominant minorities around the world. Now, obviously, the analogy is not perfect, right, because Americans, for one thing, are not an ethnic minority. We're a national origin minority, a close cousin. Uh, also, there's no democracy at the global level. And there are many other factors in play, our foreign policy, our cultural dominance, and so on. Nevertheless, even with those caveats, I think you will see many of the same kinds of backlashes that I've just described also operating today at the world level. Only now they're directed against the United States. Whether, for example, in the form of resolutions passed in the UN General Assembly, every single one of which seeks to redistribute wealth away from the United States, or the uh, September 11th terrorist attacks. Um, now, my colleagues, I teach at a law school, uh, often say, why do you make that analogy? It's so imperfect, it undercuts your whole argument. 
But one of the reasons I really like this analogy, going to the global level, is because it highlights a deep inconsistency in U.S. policy. And this is an inconsistency that the rest of the world is acutely aware of. And that is that when the United States calls for world democratization, what we mean, what we envision, is a world filled with lots of democracies, with ourselves at the helm leading all those democracies. The last thing most Americans want is a true world democracy in which our economic and political fate is determined by a majority of the world's citizens or a majority of the world's countries. Um, so the idea of the UN General Assembly controlling US foreign policy or foreign investment policy would not be appealing to most Americans. Like other market-dominant minorities, we don't trust the relatively poor, frustrated, resentful majorities surrounding us necessarily to act in our best interests. Um, now, I would say that one of the uh, main sources of disagreement at the global level is the question, what kind of a market-dominant minority are we? I think everybody agrees that we're a market-dominant minority, um, but why? And, you know, when I, depending on the audiences I've spoken to, you get very many different answers. Um, I've talked to the CIA, you get one answer. You talk to the UN, you get a different answer. Um, for many, uh, the world, the United States is the crony capitalist version of the market dominant minority. That is the world's ultimate crony capitalist that uses its economic power to control the politics of all the rest of the world. For other groups, uh, the U.S. is market dominant because we have better institutions and we work really hard. Um, so, next question, what do we do about all this? Very briefly, um, I'm actually uh, in favor of promoting markets and democracy uh, in some form globally. So I'm not in the, uh, I'm not even in the sort of democracy later camp like that I now associate with Robert Kaplan for reasons I'm happy to say. But there are many different versions of free market democracy. Uh, and again, I'm not anti-market. But I do think that we have been exporting the wrong version, in fact, a caricature. Um, there is no Western nation today with anything close to a laissez-faire capitalist system. And yet, for the last 20 years, we, uh, I mean, we have progressive taxation, social security, antitrust laws, security laws, anti-monopoly laws. But for the last 20 years, we have been urging poor countries around the world to adopt a bare-knuckled brand of capitalism that the United States and Europe abandoned a long, long time ago. Basically, privatize everything, here's a stock exchange, remove the subsidies um, with no safety nets or uh, mechanisms for redistribution. And it's the same but more controversial with democracy. Um, for the last 20 years, uh, the United States has been telling the poor countries of the world, with the glaring exception of the Middle East, to implement um, immediate elections with universal suffrage. Now, of course, this is not the path to democracy that the Western nations took. We disenfranchised our poor for many generations. But that's, for me, that's off the table. I think more importantly, it's important to remember that democracy today in the West means much more than just unrestrained majority rule. I think that every country has to figure out for itself what democracy means, uh, and it may look very different, but I think at a minimum it's also about minority protections, property protections, constitutionalism, and human rights. A lot more is needed than just shipping out ballot boxes for elections, which of course brought people like Slobodan Milosevic to power, and Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. 
Um, so that's um, one of the main policy thrusts. I, I think we need to rethink very carefully the kinds of market and democratic processes that we should be promoting. Now, um, of course, we can, we're academics, and it's possible to define markets. It's a, possible to define away all the problems I'm talking about. For example, if you define markets to mean markets where all ethnic groups have equal advantages, then none of the problems I predicted you know, would occur, but there is no such place. Um, and similarly, you can define democracy to include human rights and even pro-market tendencies. Um, but again, that would just be sort of defining away the problem and sort of a way of avoiding the question. I'm talking about markets and democracy as the kinds of markets and the kinds of democracy that the U.S. has actually been pushing for the last 20 years. And I think the next question is, what should we be doing instead? Um, Okay, I guess I'm out of time. Let me just uh, briefly close by saying that um, that all of these tensions that I've highlighted are just glaring today in in, in Iraq. Um, uh, instead of what many people, I guess, dreamed about, um, which is that would be a gratitude-filled Iraqi people cooperating with the United States in a rapid transition to multi-ethnic free market democracy, um, which would then produce a domino effect across the Middle East, uh, Iraq today still teeters on the brink of lawlessness and anti-Americanism remains rampant. Um, in particular, as we all see in the papers every day now, one major problem is that the Shiites represent a 60 to 70 percent long-oppressed majority in Iraq. And it is impossible to know what kind of candidate, fundamentalist or moderate, conciliatory or vengeful, pro-market or not so pro-market, uh, they would vote for in free elections. It's completely likely that national elections now um, would give rise to a regime that is anti-American, possibly anti-women's rights, anti-secular, uh, and this explains all the flip-flopping that the United States has had to do. The United States first said we're going to have democracy, and then they canceled the elections last June in Najaf when they realized that that might go fundamentalist. Uh, and now they're back on track saying that we do want um, democracy, but they have this complex system of caucuses that basically is trying to implement democracy without majority rule. Um, and that's a tricky thing at best. Um, okay, I think to close, since I know we're out of time, I, I would just say that uh, let me offer three quick caveats, because my thesis is so very often misunderstood. Um, first, this is not a universal theory. Uh, I know it is a very broad theory. I do think it applies to a lot of countries. But there are certainly developing countries without market-dominant minorities where you might get lots of other problems, but not these. And China and Argentina are two major examples, and there are certainly others. Second caveat, uh, I am not, this book is not proposing a theory of why ethnic conflict occurs or why you get ethnic hatred. I think this is, you know, certainly I'm not suggesting that all ethnic hatred is economic in nature. I mean, that would just be absurd. Uh, there are countless examples of persecution of economically poor, oppressed minorities, um, and dictators everywhere have persecuted minorities also. Uh, ethnic hatred is something that I think goes back to the beginning of mankind. Okay. Um, set, final caveat, and most important, and with this I'll end. Third, uh, and most importantly, I am emphatically not trying to blame ethnic conflict on markets, or on democracy, or on globalization. Um, the thesis is not about blame, but about unintended consequences. So in Indonesia, my own personal view is that the results of democratization have been disastrous. 
But if you were to force me to blame something, I wouldn't blame democracy. I would point the finger at 30 years of plundering autocracy and crony capitalism by General Suharto. Similarly, with Iraq, overnight elections might very well bring unstable results. But again, that's not democracy's fault. On the contrary, if anything, the blame rests with the repressive regime of Saddam Hussein. Unfortunately, this doesn't take away from the reality that given the conditions that we actually have now in many post-colonial countries, and these are conditions created by history, by colonialism, by autocracy, by divide-and-conquer policies, by corruption, given these actual conditions that we have in many parts of the non-Western world, the combination of laissez-faire capitalism with unrestrained majority rule may have catastrophic consequences. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, our next speaker is Samantha Power, a lecturer in public policy at the JFK School at Harvard. And she is the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of A Problem from Hell, America in the Age of Genocide, uh, also available in paper at your local bookstores. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, any of you who know Anne-Marie Slaughter know that you have to agree to speak at a conference in order to have a cup of coffee with her because she's so busy and uh, a whirling dervish of creativity and intellectual entrepreneurship. Um, it's great also to uh, meet Amy, who I've never met. Um, I've been meaning to read her book for a very long time, so it was good to have the uh, train ride and plane ride as a catalyst to do so. Um, the only thing I just want to respond to the point about Zimbabwe, because it's really the only, uh, I mean, just just in what you said that, that, I, that I think um, begs a serious question, and you alluded to me, so I'll just respond to that specifically. Um, one of the things that one saw, actually, was that Mugabe had la lost, or had saw himself as having lost democratic legitimacy, which you know. He had actually lost a constitutional referendum. And the people he blamed most were not actually the white farmers, but the two million farm workers who were on their farms and who became such a sizable political force in the country. Now, he blamed the white farmers for stoking them up, but it was actually, I think, to some extent, a symptom of the loss of democratic legitimacy that he, I mean, he was literally trying to decapitate that electoral base, which was black um, and poor, uh, and yes, very much affiliated with, uh, you know, the white farms. But so the, the assault on the, the farms themselves, I think, was just, was, was actually directed at a wider uh, span. Um, very, very small point, and would love to engage at some other occasion about everything else um, in the book. Um, but I was asked to uh, look at the tension between universalism and claims to human rights and particularism and ethnic and religious and national uniqueness. Um, so I'll try to do that. What I thought I would do is talk about um, four uh, sort of aspects to this debate that came to mind upon being prompted. Um, the first is asking uh, what actually fuels foreign policy and recognizing, beginning with by a discussion of, of the that, that entails a recognition um, that while we might all aspire to universal ends, it is particularist forces within countries like this one that actually yield outcomes and, and fuel uh, agendas. Second point I want to look at just briefly, because Miguel thought that it might be useful, is to look at the fact that, of course, we have non, a non-universal and not at all consistent standard for intervention. 
whether we're talking about military, economic, or diplomatic. It's a whole series, again, of organic, domestic, uh, and strategic considerations that give rise to output. Um, so whether it's in the name of universality or not, uh, it's not going to look the same in, in different places, which in turn undermines the claim to universality. Thirdly, and uh, Amy's talked about this and I won't say much, but of course there are inherent contradictions within the universal human rights corpus that have goods such as liberty, security, self-determination, um, peace, justice, etc., at odds with one another uh, quite distinctly. So you can be for a whole series of universals and still not know which to come first and how to deal with the trade-offs and tensions inherent. And then fourth, and I think crucially, I want to just say um, a little bit about the backlash against universalism, um, again, which Amy alluded to, or against universal claims. And, and in that context, I want to look at um, the sort of ingrained suspicion uh, in the developing world about humanitarian intervention, and two, um, a kind of um, counterproductive effect in terms of uh, the growth of particularist identities and even obsessions in the wake of the abuse of uh, you know the claim to the universal. This is all very abstract, but that's what I hope to do uh, in a very short period of time. Uh, firstly, um, in this sort of in this room probably goes without saying, but uh, ultimately in uh, democratic systems uh, you have uh, a, a tension um, when it comes to human rights uh, application. Um, the tension, uh, I think, centers on uh, the fact that many of us in a democracy like this one who are uh, educated um, in kind of liberal traditions are very ripe to be led to a human rights foreign policy. That is, the kind of the notion of a crimes, crime against humanity, uh, you know, kind of you can go, like I've traveled in the red states, you, people, people get it. You know, they get that that's bad and that it would be good if we did something for it provided it didn't come, of course, at, at too great a, a cost to us. But the, this ripeness for universal uh, ends doesn't translate into uh, mobilization. That is, it's a, it's a predisposition, perhaps, generously a predisposition, but what it isn't is a politically mobile force that's actually going to move policy. So, um, you know, sort of claims to multilateralism don't cause the heart to quicken. Um, you know, you don't get out of your chair to demand that the United States, you know, integrate itself into international institutions or indeed intervene um, <clears throat> to stop some mon horror uh, uh, abroad. If anything, you're going to mobilize in the opposite direction. You're going to see the sort of, you know, the left in this country mobilizing against the use of force and the passive perhaps majority or at least plurality sitting back and kind of maybe hoping that the policy kind of continues. So this is, this is structural. And just I want to give um, three examples um, of this uh, sort of where we see this at work in, in domestically. First, genocide. And I'm not going to talk uh, about genocide. This is like hallelujah. I don't have to talk about genocide at this conference. Um, <clears throat> um, but, but to use it as an example of, um, of domestic politics, uh, foreign policy, particularism, universalism, there is this mobilization gap in genocide. One of the things that I found most shocking uh, in my research uh, in looking at human rights groups in this country, so the people who would be most disposed to get out of their chair and for their hearts to quicken in the face of uh, you know, claims to multilateralism and to humanitarian intervention, Amnesty International is a great example 
uh, until two years ago, had never grouped its membership. So here is the one human rights organization that actually has a grassroots, a grassroots membership, allegedly. I mean, truly millions of members. They had never actually grouped the membership by congressional district, ever. Like it had never dawned on anybody that that is that how you have to think about harnessing, again, that kind of ripeness. Uh, Human Rights Watch, of course, next year is going to have a $29 million budget. I mean, in terms of the, 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 the methodology, the rigor, the growth, Amnesty International, when it started, had a budget of $19,000 back in 1961. This is big, and there is um, a, a rigor and um, a, a, even a scope now to their research uh, that is truly formidable, but they don't have anybody to give the research to to actually generate uh, caucuses and, and uh, of concern in Washington. So you see this kind of gap in the human rights community. Um, another place you see it in the context of genocide is in the issue of ethnic allegiances and ethnic constituencies who do mo move uh, foreign policy. But if you look at something like genocide, ethnic constituencies get created by genocide. <laughs> they, Armenians came to this country in the wake of the horrors, uh, you know, in the Ottoman Empire. The Jewish community in this country, of course, much more uh, active in the wake of the Second World War uh, than during. Um, and the Albanian community, even in this country, you see some of uh, Milosevic's repression in Kosovo generating actually a pretty impressive uh, force that, that played a factor, played a role in influencing senators like Bob Dole and others and influencing the Clinton administration when it came to the Kosovo intervention. So you can see ethnic lobbies speaking out on behalf of people. And at their best, you can actually see a crossover of ethnic identity uh, being able to be harnessed. And the best example, I think, of that that you're probably familiar with is the way Jewish groups in this country mobilized on behalf of Bosnian Muslims, Muslims, <laughs> because they looked like those who we said we would never again allow to be herded into concentration camps in, in Europe. Um, so you can, the, the, the constituencies are potentially there, but one has to get quite creative about um, kind of unlikely bedfellows. The second um, uh, example of this particularism at work in fueling foreign policy in the name of human rights, I think um, one can see uh, in, the, in the context of uh, religious uh, lobbies, and Professor Eric Gregory is here, he can speak uh, far better about this than, than I, but um, one sees, for instance, uh, the Christian coalition um, playing a truly impressive role in generating high-level attention in this administration to the arguably genocide, certainly civil war in Sudan. And yet, when the killing, the nature of the killing actually changes and it becomes racially motivated, so we have a very high level process to actually playing, paying dividends, strictly diplomatic, but with some economic uh, perks and incentives thrown in, but the minute actually the victim group changes, we're, we're, we're flat-footed. We're caught flat-footed because we were in because of the persecution of Christians in the South. And now suddenly there are these new killings taking place on racial grounds. And the process doesn't actually know how to incorporate it because the process was a symptom of those who actually um, created the incentive for the engagement. Um, one sees, of course, also uh, this selectivity in the context of um, APAC and some of the lobbies here and the ways in which um, you know, certain criticisms uh, and certain applications of universal human rights uh, norms are actually deemed to be off limits because of the strength of uh, domestic lobbies. Um, again, the sort of corollary to my Bosnian Muslim American Jewish group example um, is to look at the way in which this religious constituency was harnessed um, not simply for Christians, but frankly for an entire continent 
um, regarding AIDS funding, prevention, uh, treatment, and care uh, initiatives. It was probably the religious right in this country more than any other single lobby uh, that created the impetus for Bush's announcement of the $15 billion AIDS allocation. So there are, again, occasions where one can take the particularism and maybe creatively uh, uh, harness it, but um, it creates, obviously, a whole series of, uh, uh, of problems and, and issues. In the, the context of the religious right, I think you see how human rights advocates kind of learn that certain constituencies, potent constituencies that may not be natural allies to causes, how they have to be mobilized on their own terms. And I think the example, just to give on that, would be Bono going in to meet with Jesse Helms and knowing precisely the number of verses of scripture that mention the duty to give to the poor. I mean, going into the meeting, I mean, that's a form of rigor uh, in terms of advocacy, is knowing his audience and knowing what he has to uh, mobilize uh, with him. Third example I want to give just briefly, again, in this particular, is, is the debate over Guantanamo. Here, uh, one isn't not talking about ethnic constituencies or religious constituencies, but you see the way in which um, our outrage uh, on behalf of nationals and citizens who are locked up without access to lawyers and uh, other things, um, is it, it grows out of the fact that state citizens have constituencies in the United States. You know, we're for citizens. <laughs> we're for them. The problem is non-citizens who don't have anybody actually playing any kind of potent political role in our uh, uh, process. And so there you see bilateral diplomacy, you know, actually looking out for the Australians, perhaps, and the Brits, and so on. But God forbid, you know, the, the rest of the people in Guantanamo get um, anybody speaking up for them. Okay. Second point to make, um, this was on Miguel's uh, suggestion, is just to observe what we all know, which is that there is no single standard for economic, diplomatic, and certainly military intervention. Um, and it's the military intervention that I think strikes people uh, the most when one looks at perception around the world. It's just, you know, how can it be so different for Kosovo than Rwanda, for Sudan, than Chechnya, you know, for Aceh, you know, and Tibet. Maybe that would be more similar, in fact. Um, but that, that our engagement is, of course, a product of the forces that I just mentioned, but also a whole series of other considerations, like, okay, first, of course, is there a domestic constituency? Is there a political cost to not engaging? Is there any foreseeable gain to getting involved diplomatically, economically, militarily? Um, in many instances, integrating human rights in a robust way into a, a policy is going to cost you something, whether money or credibility or some kind of strategic warmth. Um, but it's not at all obvious what it's going to get you. It's going to get them, but they don't vote. And so again, there are electoral considerations and, and domestic uh, interests at stake. Then, of course, there's the issue, if you're talking about military intervention, of just of the costs and benefits of the intervention itself for the people in whose name you're uh, acting. So, uh, you know, that is, is a, you not, believe it or not, um, often uh, a major consideration, I mean, in the sense of collateral damage informing uh, calculations about application of human rights, or what John Shattuck is now calling human rights wars, um, but it certainly comes behind domestic considerations. And then the third set of uh, considerations, which would be strategic, just, you know, is this good for America? Is, you know, are we putting NATO's credibility at stake in Kosovo in a way that's only going to undermine it in the long term and have ripple effects, very negative ripple effects for uh, the standing of that military alliance, which needs all the credibility it can get, so it never has to be used. These kinds of things are, of course, uh, at work in addition to the, just the costs. So when one is debating whether to do 
radio jamming in Rwanda that it costs $8,500 an hour is a serious factor behind why we chose not to try to impede in the genocide in that way. So you have all these things are at work and there's this swirl and it necessarily is going to lead to um, very different applications of the principle that are the principles that are allegedly guiding um, you know commitment to universal norms. In principle, of course, the United Nations is the transcendental embodiment of our commitment to those norms, but as we all know, the slender secretariat has neither a, a, a mind, a bank account, um, or an army of its own. And so what one still comes back to again and again is the states that comprise uh, these uh, liberal internationalist institutions. And so one has to still think about the ways in which domestic politics and configurations in each state are giving rise to um, state aims. Um, third uh, point, and this has already been said, and, and I'm sure will come up in the, in the later discussion, is that, of course, there are major, major contradictions within uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, within or among conventions, human rights conventions and, um, and, and the like, within our Bill of Rights, in fact, um, major tensions. So, you know, not least of which is that even though one is looking for kind of some universal set of norms and set of standards and lines below which no one can sink, what we're really trying to do also is create a space for difference. So there's something homogenizing in the premise, and yet, you know, what we really want to do is allow for self-determination and allow for people to decide for themselves who and what they want to be. Um, so some examples, of course, range from self-determination uh, on the one hand and, and minority rights on the other. You know, how do you push for democracy in Muslim countries without uh, causing a diminishment in, in women's rights? You see already, I think, in the um, one of the few things Saddam, uh, I think probably safe to say the only thing Saddam did uh, well was integrate um, women into his government and into the parliament and so on. And uh, was, you know, I think 40 percent or something like that. And only one member of the governing council um, is uh, a, a woman. You're already seeing it, you know, obviously in, 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 as people foreshadow and, and forecast what's going to come next. Um, how do you push for uh, Saudi elections without actually accelerating, um, you know, the, the uh, accelerating and strengthening the radical uh, Islamic forces in those societies? How do you push for free marketeering, if that's what you're after? And there are those, and certainly in this country, who believe that that is as universal as the right to life. Um, so, and, and not undermine security and basic liberty, and certainly a whole corpus of social and economic rights that for most people in the world think are the, the most people in the developing world are, are, are think of as the true enabler rights, whereas we might be disposed uh, to, to believe that Civil and political rights are the route to be able to argue and to assemble on behalf of actually changing healthcare policies. There are those who believe eating comes first, um, and then you, you won't have any, or if you don't have food, you won't have any energy uh, to gather. Um, third example, of course, is, and it gets to, I suppose, Zimbabwe, would be um, issues of equality, state policies geared, even if only in name, toward equality. Um, that uh, interfere with the right to property and a, a whole s series of uh, forms of, of liberty 
and their land redistribution, of course, is a, is a great example of that. So there are these contradictions, and as I'll talk about in a sec, the challenge is, I think, how do we institutionalize the trade-offs and the tensions and, um, you know, create truth in advertising, not as if they're that's simply saying if you would, you know, for human rights that it'll tell you um, whether you can shout fire in a crowded theater. Um, so uh, penultimately, I want to just talk, say a little bit about the backlash uh, against, I think, what is seen to be the sort of false promise of universalism. Um, first in the area of uh, humanitarian intervention, and I think this is really only struck me as one who was, uh, is a self-proclaimed humanitarian hawk, um, but it really has only struck me in the, in, over the course of the last year in dialogue with people within uh, developing world uh, countries. Um, I mean, I know it has struck many of you probably long before, so I accept full responsibility for my uh, slowness. But um, guess what? There's a major suspicion around the issue of humanitarian intervention in the developing world. Um, there is a, and this I think comes from several things. One, the abuse of the claim to universality and the abuse of the language of humanitarianism and human rights. And look, see Iraq. Uh, you know, when states invoke uh, humanitarianism to cover, uh, you know, wars especially, but policies carried out for other reasons, it, there is a dilution uh, and, a, and an undermining of language that then makes it hard to uh, apply in, even in serious uh, settings. But I think secondly, and, and as importantly, we all know that the claim to humanitarianism carries no information. Um, I mean, Hitler invaded the Sudetenland on humanitarian grounds, on the grounds of protecting human rights. There is no information in that claim. So we do know that, and that even I would have known before. But what's very, very interesting to see now is the way in which the fact that we have proven in the past, we the, let's call it the West, we the, the manifestation of the Security Council will anyway, in UN deployments and in NATO and, and kind of bilateral engagement, we have proven that when it, something is humanitarian, we're not serious. And so that creates a whole different kind of suspicion, which isn't about claims and motives, but it's actually just, it's, it's quite sort of empirical and, and, and it's very much about follow through and expectations. So because they believe that if it's merely humanitarian that gets us in, we're, we're actually not gonna look out for the end uh, of human rights, that it is, we'll back in, it'll be the, the, the convergence of some set of domestic forces and maybe combined with some notion of credibility or legitimacy to speak on behalf of human rights, but that we won't stick around to do the hard work, that we'll overemphasize, um, let's call it the suppression phase at the expense of the nation building phase. Um, and that, that ultimately there's something structural in the way that we do it where we just simply have the attention span barely to go there in the first place and we'll never have the attention span to, to stick around. Then, of course, there's the, the, the contradictions that become aware, that become uh, evident to, uh, you know, domestic uh, publics, like the contradiction of, in the case of Kosovo, bombing at 15,000 feet um, and thereby being seen to privilege the lives of the interveners, of course, again, if you're thinking domestically, over those in whose name you're uh, allegedly intervening. So that sort of universalism uh, gets undermined in the very form uh, of the intervention. So this idea that, um, that, we, that when they can say to us it, with very, very full confidence, we know when you come you won't be serious, number one, and number two, when you come 
we have some suspicion and, and even expectation that if you're there in the first place, there must be something else going on. Um, I mean, the level of suspicion is, is uh, so uh, profound. So I think that's something that in the um, dialogue, which has not been a dialogue, it's more been an internal conversation that we've been having over the course of the last few years about is it right to intervene, is it duty to protect, responsibility to prevent, uh, they're like, stay away, you know? It's a very, very different um, kind of reaction now. And so we have to ask ourselves, how is it that only the Kosovars, the East Timorese, and the Afghans, barely, um, would, if polled, say that these interventions did serve humanitarian ends? Leave even aside the issue of motive. How is it that, that on the, the issue of the legitimacy of humanitarian intervention, that's where we are? Uh, maybe they need to get out and be sort of diplomats um, for, uh, you know, for their own experience, but, um, but the fact is virtually everyone else, again, outside perhaps Western circles, um, is very, very skeptical about effect as well as motive. Second point on backlash, and then I'll wrap up, um, is that what one sees is that the abuse of universal claims um, leads to actually a growth of particularism. Um, and just this, again, quite an obvious point, but um, everything from the growth of the state of Israel and the recognition that if you're merely human, that you're never more naked than when you're invoking human rights. You know, Edmund Burke's point, that you have to be invoking, you know, the rights of the Frenchman or the rights of a citizen of a state, and that that is actually the best way to see your welfare um, uh, protected and, and advanced. So you see it, I think, in the, in, in the formation of, of nation states. Um, you see it, I think, interest, very interestingly, in Southern Africa, um, where, for instance, President Mbeki, so suspicious over um, everything from Western governments and their relationship to the apartheid regime, and again, talk of stability as the greatest good in the international order over the rights and welfare of people within the state, to deep suspicion over trade policies um, that are, you know, sort of articulated in the name of uh, creating a bigger pie, but that seem to leave the big slices <laughs> for everyone other than, um, again, the sort of recipients in the developing world. So he then comes and goes to this very, very dangerous place where he wants so desperately African solutions for African problems that he's willing to abet Mbeki and he's willing to actually um, delay the dispensal or the dispersal of AIDS medicines because he's so desperate to find his own African cure. And you see the, 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 you know, the back and forth. So the more we go in in the name, I think, of these uh, values and undermine them in form, in, 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 in actual behavior, I think the more people are pushing back. The other example of this is, of course, um, Shiite identity now in Iraq. Um, there was certainly going to be a flourishing and a flowering of that identity but nothing makes, I don't think, an individual lunge toward um, a particular grouping than state collapse. That is, if the only security around <clears throat> is that supplied either within the mosque in terms of metaphysical security or by a local militia, uh, in the case of the Shiite militias that have been cropping up around the country, that's where you're going to go. So again, when you go in in the name of universality and then you don't have the goods to look out for those in whose name you're doing it, you're going to see these kinds of backlashes. Okay, just to close um, with a few thoughts about remedies and kind of closing these gaps. Um, first is, um, is just how do we actually go about institutionalizing um, the tensions and the trade-offs 
inherent within the kind of claim, the, the, the universal claims and the universal declaration of human rights. You know, you look at the Afghan constitution now and you have both the incorporation of CEDAW, the Convention to Eliminate Discrimination Against Women, um, and you have um, a basic, just a, a, the stipulation, explicit stipulation that no law should contradict Islam. This is built into the Constitution. Um, it'll be up, hopefully, to some you know mixed court structure to decide how on earth you balance those um, those uh, two provisions. But in addition to institutionalizing, it seems that one of the things that has to happen, clearly not by us, but is that within these societies that are going through these transitions, the expectation has to be generated uh, that trade-offs exist. There is this notion that there is, that there's somehow this set of human rights that kind of go and you just stick them in. And, the, um, and I think it, it's always a great shock. It certainly was a great shock for me in law school to be thinking about it for the first time. Like, oh, but they don't actually go together and they sort of at odds with each other a lot. And I don't think that conversation happens in a lot of these uh, places. I don't think the governing structures do the public diplomacy they need to on behalf of the tensions uh, uh, that are, you know, totally uh, predictable. Second, of course, from the standpoint of what we need to do is um, one can't uh, assume that there's any consistent, or one can't even aspire toward consistency in foreign policy given the number of forces and variables at work, as I talked about. But I think to um, pretend as if we are consistent, or at least to not give transparency, more transparency, to the inherent selectivity of our principles, one, and two, to make ourselves less selective in the application of our principles would actually uh, move us uh, toward, anyway, regaining, I think, some of the trust, both in terms of the use of our, our language and, and ensuring that our words actually uh, bear some resemblance in the eyes of how people are hearing them with what we actually mean, um, <clears throat> and, and just creating a, a greater predisposition um, to believe that, that, that this country and other countries like it are working actually toward a, a day where there won't be such gross contradictions in the way we would treat Russian human rights abuses of Chechens and, you know, uh, Milosevic's human rights abuses of, of Kosovars or anybody else's. How is it that we're sort of making transparent that there are these calculations at work, that we are democracies, that we are the sum of the elements within our societies, um, so that not, that what peoples around the world are not simply seeing is what comes out of the black box, uh, which is so, there are such discrepancies and, and contradictions uh, in. And then thirdly, uh, the one just has to flag, of course, the danger of um, confusing universalization with Americanization. And one sees that, in, the, of course, in the economic context, but one even sees it in the context of nation building in both Afghanistan and Iraq, where when we talk as if, as the president said, there is one single sustainable model for human progress, ours, <laughs> um, that is going to raise uh, eyebrows and discredit, again, uh, the very, the, some of the very, very positive effects that um, some of these interventions hopefully can have in the long term in terms of human rights and human life. And, and final uh, point, um, it could be that, <clears throat> maybe this is just to close on a, on a positive note, that um, that maybe the only good news of the stir about the stirring of particularist passions in Iraq or any place else is that um, it's so unmanageable and so unwieldy as one is finding in Iraq that it actually leads countries like the United States, which not, might not be at all disposed toward international institutions, 
um, to lunge <laughs> in that direction. And I think one sees it in that it, it probably is only the Shiite cleric Sistani, uh, much more than Tony Blair, who could convince the Bush administration to go to the United Nations um, for the help uh, that the U.S., of course, will need. So it is actually probably the more international, the more universal the form, as unwieldy as it will be, the greater the claim, actually, to adherence to the principle. So thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, what I'd like to do is just uh, call a 10-minute break, and we can all refresh ourselves, as it were. And because Professor Chua uh, will have to leave early, I also wanted to give an opportunity for anyone who wanted to just chat with her individually uh, to, to do so. Uh, we will meet back here at 10.30, please. Thank you very much.
Take your seats, please. I'm back in. I'm totally hard to answer. We're going to start again uh, with the commentators. Uh, first of all, um, Professor Chua asked me to apologize to everyone again. Uh, she, her conflict was between the universal obligations of scholarship and the very particularistic obligations of her family. Um, so she has, uh, appropriately so, responded to the particularistic obligations of her family, and she had to return to New Haven. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to have the three commentators. Um, I'll just introduce them now to avoid all the traffic coming up to the podium. And then we will take a couple of questions, and we will allow Professor Power then to comment on the comments and on the questions, and if we have time, we'll just continue with, with that dialogue. Uh, let me just introduce the, the three commentators, and I will focus not so much on the disciplinary interests as on their regional specialties, because that's, in a sense, what they have been asked to, to do, to come here and complement the more globalist or, or universalistic, if you will, comments by our two speakers with a more regional-focused uh, uh, approach. Um, one is the, the first commentator is Lawrence, Lawrence Rosen from the Department of Anthropology, who uh, has worked in a variety of fields, but most, uh, most particularly in the, in the Maghreb. Uh, then we have Professor Christopher Eisgruber from the Woodrow Wilson School, and, the, uh, and who has worked in that mysterious foreign land of constitutional law. And he will be bringing that regional perspective. Uh, and finally, we have Professor Deborah Yasher from the Department of Politics, who has done much of her field work in Latin America. So we will begin with Professor Rowe. Like all the other participants, I want to thank Miguel and the people who organized this. In my case, because I've been running out of opportunities to make a fool of myself in new and distinctive ways in public again. <laughs> and now that I get to spend 10 minutes discussing the state of the entire world, it was at least to an anthropologist an absolutely irresistible opportunity for a new ritual of degradation. <laughs> Um, you will see, too, very quickly that as an anthropologist, I come at things in a rather um, slightly more particularistic way. I suppose that whenever you expand all the way to the entire world, some of your assumptions and some of the flaws in them show up a little bit more clearly. In the case of, I think, anybody talking about this, one of the things you get to see immediately is whether they fall mainly into the category of lumpers or splitters, and I'm rather more on the splitters side of things like most anthropologists, or at least of my ilk, although, to borrow a phrase, we imagine ourselves uh, painting elegant little miniature paintings on ever more Lilliputian canvases, um, there is some theoretical foundation for the position. If human beings really are category-creating creatures, we create the categories of our own experience and relate them to one another. Across so many domains, they begin to seem both imminent and natural then you can understand why there's at least some advantage to thinking in somewhat more localized sort of terms, and it's a, to a degree of that effort um, an emphasis that I want to address some of my remarks. Take just a few things from my particular part of the Briar Patch, North Africa, the Middle East, the Arab and Muslim world, uh, in reference to some of the things that have been raised um, during the course of the last day and a half. For example, um, 
in no particular order, but um, just because some of them are a little more recent. I thought Samantha's reference to um, the use of, uh, in the Afghan, uh, the Iranian, other perhaps Muslim constitutions, the notion that there shall be no law that contradicts Islam will present all sorts of problems. But you can see the local variation because it gets even more interesting than that. In every single Muslim culture and every Islamic legal system, there's also a proposition that effectively says that local custom trumps even the sacred law. Now, whatever else the Islamic law is going to mean in these contexts, it's going to have to mean something in terms of quote-unquote custom. It's also true that um, Islam is, in a sense, what Muslims believe and what Muslims do. And major historical events have occurred when colonial powers have made that kind of mistake, when in 1934 the Berbers were to be placed under their customary law by the French and the Arabs under Islamic law, the Berbers hit the roof. They said, what do you mean our law isn't Islamic law? This is our kind of Islamic law. And when I've worked in Malaysia, where you have basically matrilineal groups whose system of inheritance, believe you me, does not quite match with what the Quran itself says on the subject, they clearly address themselves to the notion that, again, custom is Islamic, and that's their Islamic version of doing it. So however much we may look at the sort of larger sort of picture, the local is going to play up extremely importantly in a variety of ways. Take another couple of instances that relate to some of the things that Amy, I think, was talking about as well as Samantha Power. If you look in the Middle East, for example, and compare it, you find that very different sort of cultural notions may be operative, obviously, and some misunderstandings uh, resulting from it, but misunderstandings as much from the scholarly side as anywhere else. For example, when in the United States, uh, people get upset about something, they almost always talk in terms of rights. In the Middle East, they almost always talk in terms of justice. But then you have to figure out what they mean by justice. I don't have time to really go into my argument about this, but justice, I think, for them means more equivalence than equality. And then the question becomes of how do we equilibrate various kinds of things that, to be true to their nature and their state and their place in the universe, need to be treated differently, but not necessarily in the sense of unequal. It would be unequal to treat things that are different identically. Now, the results may be some things we all don't agree with, but it also comes as a great surprise, if I may say to a lot of people, the studies that we do have, say, of Islamic law courts. Mike Pellets in Malaysia, Mir Hosseini in post-revolutionary Iran, uh, Judith Tucker's work on the Ottoman records, my own work in Morocco. Does it come as a surprise to you to learn that if women proceed with their legal cases, not to a settlement, but to an actual decision by a court of law, in every single one of these instances, they win way over 90% of the time? you at least have to understand what the local meaning and circumstances then are going to be for these kinds of situations because, as I'm suggesting as an anthropologist who really does, I suppose, uh, believe a little bit more in the splitter than the lumper side of things, that if you ignore the local situation and turn your back on it, uh, it will probably bite you in the backside when you least expect it. Take another kind of instance. Many of the things we've been talking about, understandably, uh, seem to be monetizable, but as we all know, many things can't be so easily converted in people's local conceptualizations into money. If you want to experiment with that, do what I did in class with my students the other day, and we talked about what parts of their bodies they can and cannot sell, what they'd be willing to give, 
what they would be willing to do for money, what they would be willing to do but only if they weren't paid any money and it was a volunteer activity, think about yourself. You know, there are things you wouldn't do for two bucks an hour that you'd be perfectly willing to do for nothing. Uh, what is it that is culturally being converted into what here? Take again the Middle East. Pre-9-11, what so infuriated folks I've talked with in the Middle East is that George Bush literally turned his back on the situation and wasn't willing to continue a conversation and continue to engage. Now, it isn't as though I've spent the last 35 years hanging out on streets waiting for fights to occur, but the few times that I have seen and documented people getting into physical violence in the parts of the Middle East that I've worked with, it always follows much the same pattern. You start shouting at each other, which means you start getting everybody in the area around because they're the ultimate arbiters of the situation. You stand at right angles to one another, basically appealing to these various people. But if you turn your back, if you turn 180 degrees, it's just like you pulled the plug on an electrical system. In the Arab world, it's held together by a running imbalance of pluses and minuses, of constant ingratiation, of negotiated uh, ups and downs, of one-upsmanship. But it means that if you turn your back, you've pulled the plug, you become unpredictable. It's not clear what is happening. I think a major mistake was made by the United States in thinking that right after the Iraq War, Iraq II War, um, that what we had was anarchy, chaos, etc. It was a very distinctive form. It was a concept in Arabic of fitna, which doesn't mean mere anarchy. It's a very particular kind of opportunity, as it were, for the entire game to be started again as one reshuffles the deck, as one sweeps the board and starts it up. But the, there are very definite rules to it. Anarchy in Russia in 1917 was a distinctively anarchic form in Russia in 1917. Fitna chaos in Iraq was a very definite form. It wasn't mere anarchy. Or uh, take again the, the sort of international situation and some of the ignorance of local meaning uh, that can get you into severe sorts of um, difficulties. I think, maybe I'm wrong, um, that after the first Gulf War, George Bush thought that he had to stop because the irreducible unit of the international community was the nation state. By the time of Bush II and Gulf II, we've had Yugoslavia in between. Yugoslavia it seemed to me sort of taught them the lesson whether you think it's the right lesson, uh, that the nation state can't be broken up. And by the time of Gulf II, um, they're not only prepared to break it up, I still think that Iraq is going to wind up like Gaul in three parts effectively with a national flag and a national airplane that don't mean terribly much, um, but that they'll wind up trying to say, well, you know, as a matter of fact, the nation state can be broken up. And if you've got a map and it's got a straight line on it, guess who put it there and guess who might take it away from you? That's a very different mentality about the fundamental unit that one might be willing to deal with. But what happens at the more local level? Well, certainly there are some who may be crying like Br'er Rabbit, whatever you do, don't throw me in the briar patch, who in fact would be most at home there and are willing to have a high degree of local autonomy. It may be also that a conception of sovereignty which sees it only as identically situated autonomous units is very different from a notion of sovereignty, which one finds in many other places, of a kind of negotiated sovereignty. Um, I haven't heard too many optimistic remarks at the, the last day and a half. Um, maybe I'm just going to try to prove to you I really did go to law school by arguing now one or two things with somewhat greater force than conviction. Uh, but 
there are other models and from some of these other cultures, including from the Middle East, uh, for example, uh, a high degree of personalistic involvement in various kinds of negotiated ties may carry with it certain kinds of limitations on power. Now, some of it can be, it might seem very amusing. I love it when people in the Arab world will say to me, you know, um, bribery is our form of democracy. And I say, ooh, that's really kind of interesting. How's that work? And they say, look, the big man says do such and such a thing, but I bribe the guy underneath and not to do such and such a thing. I have a limitation on his power. Now, they have a very clear idea that democracy isn't about elections. Democracy, I think they've got it right, is about a government of limited powers. But there are lots of different ways of putting together a government of limited powers. Yes, you and I don't like bribery as the form of doing it, but there may be a lot of other ways that we can comprehend and indeed work with in that regard. Um, some, as I say, amusing, some really quite creative. Um, when I wear my lawyer's hat, I work mostly on the rights of indigenous peoples, especially Native Americans. It's been very interesting watching the kind of negotiated sovereignty through these compacts. Now, it's within a particular legal framework, and the Indians have to negotiate with the states, and if the states don't agree to negotiate, the Department of the Interior can cut the deal, which never once has happened. So whether it's casinos or any kind of ecology or developmental projects, Sometimes international, Northwest Coast fishing rights that I've worked on involve the tribes, states, and Canada. Uh, you get in negotiated sovereignty, instead of starting with this notion that every sovereign entity is at the same equal level of the possession of all of its sovereign powers, you don't have to think especially about Monaco or Sikkim or is it Bhutan who have given over their foreign uh, affairs powers to France and India. You can think more in terms of negotiated sovereignty, and there are some very interesting local and historical models of it. In the kind of instances that Amy Chua is talking about, uh, it's just infuriating. You just sort of want to grab people by their lapels or whatever it is the hell they have in place of lapels and say, you know, act like a mensch. Don't just grab it all for yourself. Spread it around, guys. Be sensible. You know, come on, basic kindergarten rules. And, and, it, and you know it, it, it may not quite be working. At the same time, no, it didn't. Well, it depends which kindergarten you went to. Oh, did I, this will say too much about how different departments operate, too. But um, kindergarten rules do work, even in academic departments. But in the kind of situation where you've got a minority who've got an unbelievable control of things, you know, the tendency is to say, well, tax them, redistribute it, come up with some other version. But there's another kind of thought that comes to me. Uh, I, I, um, I thank... Uh, um, uh, David Gerber and several other colleagues for some, bringing some of these kinds of things to my attention. Suppose you said to people, look, there must be certain things that really matter a very great deal to you, and they're not necessarily only about money. They may be about your concept of dignity or stature or the non-monetizable nature of the various things about your body or other things you cannot sell. What if you were allowed to take three or four things off the table and everything else would be subject to the same sort of rules for everybody? But if the Japanese want to say rice really means something to me, you guys just don't get it, you get to take that one off the table. But after you got three, every guy gets three freebies, you get other things. Can democracy be not just a government of limited powers, can it be a government of economically limited powers, but maybe you get a couple of things off the table first that really somehow matter to you, I think you'd find it would at least provoke a very interesting discussion, at least it does when I've had it. 
I think, too, that um, as various people have pointed out, and I will close here, the metaphors that we use matter a very great deal. As I say, I'm a fan of, of the local, so I can't resist uh, Claire Booth Luce's characterization already in 1943 of globalism as globaloney. Um, but some of the other images that we work with, I think, become extremely important. Charles Mayer yesterday referred to fractal geometry as a sort of replication at small of things at large. But it also very much implies the notion that there aren't just a few simple geometric forms like circles and triangles out of which everything is built, and that the smaller the scale of your measuring device, the greater the differences that will be projected. Believe me, when I spend the summer on my sailboat in Maine, if I don't get the right scale, I find out in a very great hurry why that chunk of granite at the entrance to the harbor is called snotty rock. <laughs> I think it matters what we're trying to measure. And if you stick only at the very large scale measure of the global and don't get down to the local in very important ways, you may find surprises you weren't expecting. So now that I've said that I uh, am both a splitter and favor uh, at least a great deal of attention to the local, I also can't resist the other notion. I think it's Ottavio Paz who once said that there are two kinds of people in the world, those who divide everything into two kinds of things and those who don't. <laughs> um, I am actually one of the don't. Uh, and in that sense, I also don't want a simple dichotomy between the local and the global. That's no help either. What is, I think, a little bit more help, but this may be just trying to peddle my own goods, is thinking in terms of systems of meaning, of what these conceptualizations are attached to and in what ways at the levels that people encounter variously in their lives. Blue jeans do not mean the same to an Arab kid that they mean to our students, and money doesn't mean the same thing, even the conceptualization of what constitutes fair engagement with one another so that a conversation can continue at least toward some general direction. So I guess, if anything, I'm uh, a little bit more optimistic that a lot of folks have come up with an awful lot of local approaches to things that might be built upon. And at least as an anthropologist, it's good for my business. Good morning. It's uh, a pleasure to be here uh, talking to you and have a chance to uh, participate in this uh, conference. I'd like to thank Miguel for uh, inviting me, and uh, uh, I'd also like to thank all of you for getting up early on a Saturday morning to uh, come listen to us. Uh, that said, I want to begin with two apologies, or at least caveats. Uh, the, the first is that, as uh, Miguel already hinted, um, We've been, we've, well, he said we've been asked to talk about our, our regions. What he's hinted at is that uh, my region is the United States. Um, this is vaguely embarrassing to me uh, at a conference entitled The State of the World. I mean, here, here I am, I'm an American showing up at a conference on the state of the world to talk about what? America, which seems uh, consistent with our national stereotype, but perhaps not with the ambitions of the conference. And it's, in his introduction, I mean, Miguel suggested something I hadn't understood about my assignment, that perhaps I was supposed to talk about lawyers as a kind of foreign population of more uh, curious characteristics. But uh, I am going to talk about uh, America. The second, the second apology that I uh, uh, have is that um, uh, I, I did not have a chance to uh, see in advance a, a draft of uh, Professor Powers' uh, 
uh, very interesting remarks, and, and therefore I, I, I'm in the somewhat curious position, again, of, of I'm going to address these remarks to Professor Chua, who's not here, and not be able, not be able to comment on Professor Power's remarks. She is here, we'll, when will, according to Miguel, be able to respond afterwards. Again, but, uh, that, so that, with, with that in place as a, as a frame, let, let me start this way. As I, I read through Professor Chua's remarks, um, uh, I, I found them very gripping and uh, interesting, and the, the set of examples very uh, compelling. And, and so, uh, first, very persuaded by the thesis, but then I began to worry about it in various ways. So, I want to I use those worries as the beginning for uh, ruminations that will lend, lead then to a couple of more uh, general points about perhaps the character of the problem that she's discussing that I might um, put out in a, in a different way. So the first thing that I began to wonder about in, in connection with this was. Um, uh, whether or not the term market-driven was really the right term to use for the minorities, that the powerful minorities that she was uh, talking about. So one question I asked myself was, well, suppose we take out the word market-driven and just say rich. Suppose we say they're rich uh, minorities. Would we have the uh, same kind of dynamic at uh, stake? And indeed, in her remarks today, she made reference to the case of Rwanda and said there that the um, uh, status of the minority wasn't, in fact, market-driven in um, anyway, so that, I began then to wonder whether one could come up with a more theoretically spare description of the circumstances under which the problem she was describing would arise. And, and again, the question I would uh, put to her, uh, were I able to do so, and may, may, may try by email, is, well, look, suppose we just ask the question, if there is a, uh, a poor, uh, perhaps ethnically cohesive, but I'm not even sure that's necessary. It could be a kind of a class, uh, and, and maybe it needs to be a majority, but I don't think uh, that's true either. There's some sort of uh, well-defined poor group. At one point she said uh, a group that uh, has no future uh, in a country that is uh, desperate uh, in some way. Um, isn't that going to be a recipe for strong conflict with whatever other groups are uh, holding power and do have a future within the uh, country And does, do, do markets and democracy have anything special to do with the conflicts that we're then likely um, to see? Um, I'll speculate here about something that uh, um, a political scientists would know more about than uh, I do, but in my hat, uh, wearing my kind of political theorist hat about this, I, I thought to myself, well, if you have a group like that, a group that sees no future for itself and feels a kind of cohesion as a matter of economic class or of ethnicity or uh, something else, um, they're going to want out of that position, and you're going to need a strong state to keep a lid on it if you're going to preserve that as the uh, status quo. Now, one thing that occurred to me is that you might regard um, markets and democracies as one kind of proxy for a certain kind of weakening of the uh, state. That is, you're at least going to have a dis dispersion of power to um, economic power holders or um, to other individuals if you have uh, a move toward democracy or um, uh, markets, But it doesn't seem to me that, that what's doing the work there is democracy or markets in particular, uh, but rather the existence of this uh, aggrieved class uh, and uh, an estate that either feels a very strong need to keep a hold on uh, power or that uh, lacks that uh, power. So those musings then lead me, led me to wonder whether or not there were in fact two distinct problems um, uh, going on in uh, Professor Chua's uh, paper, uh, one of them involving a kind of clash between what she calls uh, markets or democracy, or one might say more basally between uh, liberty and equality, and I'll come back to uh, that in a moment, and a second involving uh, relationships between the rights of individuals and the uh, prerogatives or uh, powers or rights of 
groups. And let me say something now, moving closer to my uh, region, since I'm feeling at sea here, talking about something other than the United States, but say something about both of those with um, regard to the United um, States. Um, it's true, I suppose, that in, in some modern political ideology, in the campaign platforms and so on, and perhaps of uh, both parties, um, markets and democracy are thought of as uh, entirely um, uh, reinforcing. Looking at this as a political theorist, uh, it, it doesn't seem to me particularly surprising if someone says, look, there's a tension between uh, markets and um, uh, democracy, that is, uh, that in, in markets you get uneven distributions of uh, wealth and democracy presents a problem where uh, the have-nots try to take property from the uh, haves. Or, or put differently in Tocquevillian uh, terms, it's not surprising that one sees a tension between uh, liberty, which sometimes leads to inequalities, and a commitment to um, equality. So to take one of these things, that is in the United States at the founding, uh, the tension between markets and democracy seems to me to have been a serious, one of the most um, um, prominent concerns of the American uh, framers. When they thought about the problems that existed in uh, state legislatures, part of what they were concerned about was the tendency of state legislatures to undermine markets through democratic legislation that took from the haves and gave to the have-nots, or in the language that they would have used, that took from the creditor classes and gave to the debtor classes. Um, they proposed a particular kind of constitutional uh, solution. They implemented a particular kind of constitutional solution to this. For what it's worth, uh, uh, if it has uh, greater application, I mentioned some of the familiar uh, elements of it. So two of them are, are from Madison's famous paper in uh, Federalist 10. I think I'm supposed to, in these precincts, mention his class number, James Madison, Princeton class of whatever, but I'll almost <laughs> forget what it is. But uh, the, um, in, in Federalist, um, Federalist 10, um, uh, he, he says, uh, of course, that, that one of the important solutions to this problem of legislatures that, that uh, try to take from the uh, haves is to expand the nation and diversify the set of factions that are uh, represented within the legislature so as to make it harder for the legislature to come together on, um, uh, uh, well, let's, let's put this as um, uh, provocatively as possible, harder for the legislature to come together on a redistributive uh, solution. Uh, he also said that if you expand the scope of the uh, republic, you'll get more elites in the legislature because they'll be the only people that, who are known. So in some sense, you might think the property classes will be more represented than they would otherwise be in a more local legislative body. And you might think that that would protect the rights of property holders as against the um, populist uh, masses. Uh, the Federalists created an independent judiciary, which was very much about the protection of uh, property rights. And then I think importantly and to an extent which is under um, uh, uh, focused upon in most count accounts of constitutional uh, theory, uh, they fragmented power among multiple institutions, both horizontally and vertically. That is, it's very hard to get things done in the United States. There are lots of uh, veto points, both in the national government where you have to get through two houses of Congress, for example, and get around a presidential uh, veto, uh, and uh, because even if Congress passes something, uh, there are limits to what Congress can do, and then there are 50 state legislatures and lots of localities. All of this inaction uh, creates stability for uh, markets. And finally, they put in place uh, a government that was designed to allow for mobility for capital and for uh, persons. Uh, capital can leave. Persons can leave if state legislation is um, uh, hostile. As Russell Hardin has uh, pointed out, this kind of government uh, created the stability necessary to form a powerful economy, and the powerful economy uh, provided sufficiently diverse benefits to create a lot of 
uh, buy-in, I think one can ask questions about uh, whether or not the resulting system, and, and political theorists and constitutional theorists do, uh, Robert Dahl perhaps most prominently recently, ask questions about whether or not this uh, amounts to a democratic system of governance, or whether or not this deals with the tension between markets and democracy by opting in some form away from democracy. I, I here want to uh, echo what uh, my colleague Larry Rosen said a few moments ago. I don't equate legislative governance with um, um, uh, democracy. That's not to say that legislatures aren't important, but that they're not the whole story of uh, democratic governance, and, and uh, populist elections are not the whole story of democratic go governance. So I'm optimistic about this question. I think it's a democratic system, but on the other hand, uh, it's certainly easy to point to the ways in, with, in which wealth within the American system uh, operates um, um, uh, in a way that, that reflects inequalities within our uh, society. So that's the first of the two problems, the, the markets democracy problem and uh, the equality liberty problem, put even more uh, uh, basally. Uh, the second of the two problems, it seemed to me, that, were, that was underlying Professor Chua's paper was a problem about the relation of individual rights and uh, group rights. Uh, and I want to say something about that because it seems to me to be central to the framing of this particular uh, panel. Uh, and here again, I'll begin with a kind of a Tocquevillian uh, theme. The United States is in some ways uh, an individualist uh, country. We are the country of personal uh, rights and individual rights. On the other hand, we are also a remarkable hive of associational uh, activity. That is, we have groups forming um, and, and, and thriving uh, around us uh, in remarkable sorts of uh, ways. Um, for the most part, it seems to me, and, and the treatment of Native Americans here is a central uh, counterexample, but uh, for the most part, the strategy of American constitutionalism has been to treat uh, group rights and group power and group prerogatives as derivative from individual rights and individual uh, interests. Uh, in the area of constitutional theory that I study um, uh, most often and that I focus most of, most of my work on, this has been, in my view, a spectacular success story, and that area is religious uh, liberty. We are, um, by world standards, certainly by contrast with uh, Western Europe, uh, an extraordinarily religious uh, country. We are an extraordinarily religiously diverse uh, country, subject to a caveat I'll mention um, uh, in a moment. But it's not because we give religion special rights as uh, groups. Uh, it, it seems to me the basic structure that we've used to foster religious liberty has um, three elements in it, and I'll run through them very rapidly. One, one is uh, associational uh, rights, rights of uh, persons to form groups and entities of uh, various kinds, ranging from Boy Scouts to uh, corporations, and have a lot of autonomy uh, in doing so. Secondly, equality rights, that is, uh, we don't have an established uh, church. Uh, we we uh, don't favor some uh, denominations and disfavor others. Um, and third, um, uh, again, fractured power with multiple points of uh, control. There are a lot of ways that religions are able to exercise influence within our uh, society, a lot of things that they're able to accomplish precisely because our government uh, is so limited. I, I want to close by just speculating um, for a moment or so on whether or not the two kinds of solutions that I've just described are in any way generalizable beyond American uh, circumstances. That is, I've, I've talked about America. I don't want to make the mistake of assuming, um, as Americans, we Americans so often do that I've talked about America, therefore I've talked about the uh, world. So I've talked about this approach to uh, markets and democracy. I've talked about a relationship between the individual and the group that regards group rights as derivative from uh, individual uh, rights. Um, 
My colleague Anthony Appiah, uh, who, who has written very insightfully on these uh, matters, uh, has observed that although we talk more about uh, diversity in the United States these days than perhaps ever before, it's ironic that we do so because he suggests uh, we're actually more alike one another than we may have been at any other uh, time in our history. And, and, and part of Anthony's point about that is in the United States, um, we, we have less real diversity than exists within other polities uh, in the world. And so in some sense, our, the problems that we have to contend with, uh, despite the very real sorts of differences in identity that we uh, have, are uh, less um, difficult than the problems that confront uh, some other countries and other uh, polities. I, I, I think he's right about that. And, and so I, I think that although the um, approach to the, especially the relationship between individuals and groups that I've described as the right one as a matter of uh, political justice, I think it's very hard to generalize from the kind of success story that I think can be told about American uh, religious liberty. And, and it's worth noting in particular that uh, the American approach that I've described uh, hasn't dealt so well with problems when the differences were deeper. And I'll mention two cases. One of them um, the, the slavery case leading to the Civil War, but the other one perhaps more important for the purposes of my talk and the example that I've given uh, Mormonism in the 19th century, because it seems to me that the uh, American approach to the relationship between individual and group rights deals perfectly well with today's Mormonism, which is cohesive and powerful in the state of Utah, but nevertheless very much within the American mainstream. Mormonism in the 19th century was crushed and transformed by an extraordinary exercise of both legal and uh, political uh, uh, power. Um, that, I think, is a, is a representation of a more general uh, problem and one that uh, Professor Power uh, alluded to in, in her remarks uh, of the tension between self-determination and um, uh, human rights under circumstances where a majority uh, genuinely has a view different from uh, those human rights. I, I, I think, um, Again, a focus upon the individual and the dignity of the individual is the indispensable beginning point for that inquiry, but uh, there's no getting around the hard uh, questions, which, as Professor Power mentioned, uh, we're forced to confront. I'd like to start off, like all of my colleagues before me, thanking Miguel Centeno for organizing this conference, for putting together such an interesting um, group of people who have really uh, provoked, uh, I think, all of us, given us quite a number of um, things to think about, both theoretically, politically, normatively, empirically, uh, and for giving me the opportunity to, uh, to speak on this panel as well. I should say I'm in the slightly unenviable, unenviable position of being uh, at the end of the panel and before lunch. And so I can just imagine uh, those of you in this room um, being eager to listen but being tired, uh, uh, being eager to listen but also being hungry. Um, so what I thought I might do to start off uh, is to take up uh, the charge that Miguel uh, gave us, which is, uh, quote, unquote, to be parochial. Um, and since I work on Latin America, to start with a parochial in terms of region, uh, to start off uh, with a quote uh, from a conference that I went to in 1996 uh, in Chiapas, Mexico, uh, a conference that was entitled initially the Intercontinental uh, uh, Encounter for Humanity and Against Neoliberalism, uh, subsequently retitled the Intergalactic Conference uh, against, uh, for Humanity and Against Neoliberalism, again speaking directly to these issues of the state of the world. Um, and, uh, and this was the, the, one of the opening comments, an excerpt uh, read by an indigenous woman uh, in the Zapatista army uh, in uh, La Realidad uh, 
in Chiapas. And she said at this opening conference where there were uh, an in incredible number of people from around the world uh, slogging through the mud, very eager for a week of discussion, she started off by saying, below in the city and the plantations, we did not exist. Our lives were worth less than the machines and the animals. We were like rocks, like plants along the road. We did not have voices. We did not have faces. We did not have names. We did not have tomorrow. We did not exist. Then we went to the mountains. The mountains told us to take up arms to have a voice. It told us to cover our faces to have a face. It told us to forget our names so that we could be named. It told us to protect our past so that we could have a tomorrow. This is who we are. Behind our black faces, behind our armed voices, behind our unnamed name, behind those of us that you see, behind us is you. Behind us are the same simple and ordinary men and women that are found in all ethnic and racial groups, that paint themselves in all colors, that speak in all languages, and that live in all places. The same forgotten men and women, the same excluded people, the same people who are not tolerated, the same people who are persecuted. We are the same as you. Behind us is you. And I thought I would start off uh, with this um, excerpt and loosely translated quotation from uh, uh, Major Ana Maria from the Zapatista Army, not because I'm going to talk about Chiapas, I'm not, uh, but because I think it highlights uh, a series of different issues that I'd like to talk about in my brief comments. And I will try to limit myself to 10 minutes, but this seems like an impossible task. One is I'd like to start off by making some general comments about ethnic politics uh, to expand uh, the ways in which we have talked about them today. Second, very briefly, to comment on Latin America and to take uh, issue with some of the characterizations that uh, Amy Chua presented today in her comments about the region. And then to conclude very briefly with what I see as the contemporary challenges in Latin America, particularly in terms of this um, tension between individual and collective rights uh, that um, Samantha Power and my colleagues have talked about in their comments. So I'm going to try and do this very uh, quickly and perhaps in a little bit of a staccato form. All right, so my first uh, overall category has to do with some general comments about ethnic politics overall, since today we have heard quite a bit about the most extreme form of ethnic politics, which is to say ethnic violence. We've heard about references to uh, genocide uh, and uh, the violence that, occur, that can occur against market-dominant minorities. And these are really some of the most daunting uh, political and ethical challenges of our day. I think they're important issues to talk about, and I'm glad that they've been put on the table today. However, I'd like to step back and to remind us of the obvious, which is that not all ethnic politics is about violence. Uh, as uh, a, a number of my colleagues today have mentioned, ethnic politics can take many, many forms, from the formation of ethnic parties that take part uh, in normal uh, politics, pushing for representation and shaping policy, to ethnic social movements that are lobbying, to ethnic associations that are seeking to shape basic market behavior, to ethnic groups that are seeking to make life easier, more palatable, more civic uh, within ethnic communities. The question becomes then, when are these organizations more or less likely to engage in quote unquote normal politics, and when are they more likely or not to move towards uh, the kind of ethnic violence and ethnic conflict that we've talked about today. So first obvious point, ethnic politics is not of a piece. It can take many, many forms. 
Um, and I think this is an important point to bear in mind as we think about explaining ethnic conflict, where and when it does emerge. Second and a derivative point is that not all ethnic struggles around the world are about the same thing. There are some that try to capture state power, some that seek for subnational autonomy, as in the case of Native Americans in the United States, some that seek to redistribute resources and overcome inequality, some that are fighting for the respect of civil rights, recognition, reparations, affirmative action, and the like. So again, ethnic politics is not all the same piece. The goals are not always the same. And third, and I think this is a point that has come through in several of uh, the comments, starting uh, with Samantha Powers and then Larry Rosen and then Chris Eisgruber, is that when you think about ethnic politics, the form that it takes, the arena in which it is fought out, and the goals that are put before us, we need to think about the role of the state. The state is central to these discussions. And I think particularly in light of yesterday's concerns about how we think about the state, the degree to which the state is or is not present, the degree to which the state is losing sovereignty in the context of globalization overall, it is important to bear in mind that for many ethnic groups, it is the state that they negotiate with, it is the state against which and with which they are bargaining, it is the state who deter which determines are they citizens or not, what their rights are likely to be, how resources are allocated, uh, and the like. And here is where I think political scientists in particular have really tried to think about the state and the sorts of institutions that do and do not favor ethnic groups on the ground. The final um, general comment uh, that I would like to throw out is that um, violence in general and conflict in general in the political science literature at the very least um, is more likely where there are cross-cutting cleavages. So it's not ethnic ethnic identity and the salience of ethnic identity per se, which gives, uh, gives way to ethnic conflict necessarily, but it's this question of cross-cutting cleavages, which is to say where ethnicity coincides, where ethnic divisions coincide with class divisions, perhaps with geographic divisions, perhaps with religious divisions and the like, where they overlap, conflict is more likely to, to emerge in some ways in line with some of the comments, again, that Amy Chua uh, had noted, which is there are all of these reinforcing identities that make one feel as a group that you are uh, in a position of um, subordination. So again, these things are, are quite common. And the final thing I would add is obviously people do not just follow leaders uh, because they take up the ethnic card. The real question here is under what circumstances are people willing to follow a leader who is using ethnicity as the basis of mobilization? All right, so those are just, that's the first uh, general category. Just some very um, general comments about ethnic politics. I think we have to bear in mind as we think about ethnic conflict, precisely so we don't assume every time ethnicity is politicized, violence is the outcome. All right, what about Latin America then as the second broad category? Uh, as Amy Chua had mentioned in her comments, Latin America has really stood out as the anomalous region in studies of ethnicity, uh, ethnic politics, and the like. Why is that? Well, for most of the 20th century, in fact, ethnic politics has been a, a relative non-issue. And by that I mean that people have just not mobilized along ethnic lines for most of the 20th century, which really distinguishes Latin America from most other post-colonial uh, regions. It's been quite striking. It's something that's talked about in the literature overall. Uh, so we find uh, that throughout the 20th century, um, 
Latin American states promoted assimilation. There was this idea that if you were indigenous, you could become mestizo, which is a way of saying that there is a, was a sense that you could change ethnic categories um, electively, that, there, that if you decided to become non-indigenous, if you decide to become, quote, unquote, part of the nation, uh, that one could do so. And this occurred through various mechanisms, and we obviously don't have a lot of time to talk about the specifics, but there were various policies, again, as Amy Chua had noted, that tried to integrate indigenous people as national peasants uh, in, in the polity overall. And this was really a, a quite remarkable period because at least in terms of discourse, people stopped talking about Indians, and Indians stopped referring to themselves as indigenous people. Um, What's remarkable then by the end of the 20th century is that you actually do have the politicization of ethnic cleavages throughout Latin America. So you have this, Latin America stands out as anomalous, it's the one place where ethnicity does not seem relevant. The end of the 20th century, uh, as Amy Chua had noted, you start to see indigenous people mobilizing. They start forming protest groups, they start forming associations, they start demanding inclusion, they start demanding uh, territorial autonomy, they start demanding bicultural education, all of a sudden ethnic agendas expand and it becomes part of the national dialogue in a very significant way. Now, why does this occur? And here, if I can, can um, as, as, as uh, Chris said, it's kind of hard to have a dialogue with someone who's not here. I feel as, as though I'm, I'm uh, putting, this is a slightly unfair thing to do, but I presume that from the argument that um, Amy Chua put forth for us today, that she would explain the politicization of these ethnic cleavages as a response to um, this twin emergence and development of markets and democracy uh, throughout the region. I think that's a pretty fair thing to say. And I think that in some kind of broad correlational sense, if you were to look at the march of markets and the return of democracy as part of the third wave and the emergence of these movements, in fact, there is a correlation that you find throughout the region. Although I would be loath to say that that is really what is going on. Uh, and I would be loath to say that that is what is going on for several reasons. First of all, markets and democracy are not entirely new to Latin America. Markets have been in Latin America for a long time. Some of us have called them um, the, the march of capitalism that has led to different kinds of markets, but there's nothing new about markets and capitalism as a category, nor is democracy alien to Latin America, even though the most recent wave uh, has been most significant. So to look at the interaction of markets and democracy as politicizing ethnic cleavages in a region where indigenous people are poor and whites are in control of resources, I think is a dangerous argument and actually not empirically, um, does not travel over time uh, uh, throughout the region. And I would actually argue that it has to do with challenges to autonomy um, that have occurred over time. But why do I want to focus on markets and democracy? One, because it's the, the issue that uh, she brought before us. But secondly, because I want to pursue the very last point that she raised in her comments, which is we need to be very careful to think about what kinds of markets and what kinds of democracy. And this might give us the kind of analytical and political leverage to understand what is new about the contemporary period as opposed to prior periods of market and democratic um, uh, forces coming together throughout the region. Now, if I could uh, make a, a slight footnote here uh, and go back to something that Chris Eisgruber said, which is that the tension between markets and democracy is an age-old 
problem. Again, it's not a problem of the 1990s and the 2000s. Uh, Marx, Tocqueville, T.H. Marshall, those who've studied welfare states and, and corporatism and the like have long been very aware of this tension between the inequality generated by, uh, by capitalist markets and the political equality promised by democracy. That's precisely why some argue welfare states came to the fore to grease the wheels, to ease the, the inequalities that were generated and to marry these two systems which produce divergent outcomes. What is striking about the contemporary period is precisely the whittling away of those kinds of welfare states and those social welfare programs in a way that I would argue does not just necessarily lay bare the tensions between those on top and those below, but actually has challenged the local autonomy of indigenous groups that depended on those resources for local territorial spaces in which they could survive. That's a different argument than conflict between groups per se. It's a question of how the changing nature of markets and democracy have challenged local autonomy. So I would describe this region differently. And, and on an empirical note, the overthrow of Gonzalo Sanchez de Rosada in Bolivia, quite notable uh, as it is, and led by uh, indigenous groups in particular, was a multi-class multi-ethnic movement against the president. It was not just a movement against a white capitalist class, and it should be noted that he was president in the 1990s and had a quite successful term without being overthrown. So I would be careful about Latin America in particular in terms of thinking about these issues. Okay, so to wrap up this third final category, have I gone beyond 10 minutes? Okay, third final category, and I think this speaks uh, to some of the issues, although in a different framework uh, that Samantha Power put before us. The challenges ahead for Latin America in terms of thinking about the, t the tensions and the politics around individual and collective rights or individual and group rights uh, are, are quite significant and actually quite exciting, if only because it's, they seem um, almost impossible to resolve. But I see that there's a quite striking, interesting development throughout Latin America as indigenous movements have mobilized, as indigenous communities have mobilized as part of the electorate. Policymakers are starting to grapple with a number of issues that were not on the table before. The first, and in some senses the simplest, has been a discursive recognition that there are, in fact, multi-ethnic populations in the region. Throughout much of the 20th century, national constitution said, we're all Bolivians, we're all Ecuadorians, we're all Mexicans. That is our national identity. And indigenous groups mobilized to say, recognize us, just rec recognize us along the lines of the quote that I uh, first started off with when I, I quoted from uh, Ana Maria in Chiapas. And in fact, there have been significant changes in the 1990s in the constitutions of Mexico, Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador, and Colombia, recognizing for the first time the multi-ethnic, pluri-ethnic, multilingual um, uh, 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 dimensions of the, the people who live in these countries. Symbolically and discursively, that is a quite significant advance. And some of them have even passed uh, ILO 169, uh, Indigenous and Tribal Peoples in Independent Countries um, uh, Convention uh, at the international level. The second important dimension, and one that um, perhaps uh, surprisingly goes back to some of the comments again from yesterday's panel as well in the morning, is a struggle over territory and the understanding of territoriality. Indigenous groups throughout Latin America are not, like many places around the world, 
calling for separation and separatism. They're not calling for separate nation states along the line of self-determination where a, a particular ethnic group, ethno-national group, will correspond with a particular nation state. They're calling for autonomy within existing states. And this is a quite significant and quite interesting development uh, that has occurred throughout um, uh, South America in particular, in Ecuador and Bolivia and Colombia. States have started to recognize indigenous autonomy within given territories. Now here, there is so much to be uh, grappled with. I'm not a lawyer, I'm like almost everybody else uh, up here on this panel. Miguel, you're not a lawyer, are you? <laughs> Miguel notwithstanding. Uh, but this raises enormous legal questions about what does autonomy actually mean? Is it just control over material resources? And if so, does it include subsoil rights? Many of these areas have oil underneath the, the, um, the topsoil. Does it include above soil rights like timber? These are struggles that are still being played out even while territory has been recognized. And similarly, does autonomy mean more than the material, which is to say, do these groups have political autonomy within existing states? And what does that actually mean? And this brings me to the third and final, there are many more, but the three that I want to highlight here, third tension over individual versus collective rights, which is with the demand for territorial autonomy has come the demand for respect for customary law within these existing territories, a respect for indigenous elders uh, and indigenous authorities to determine to have jurisdiction over this physical space. There are a slew of people who are trying to understand how to, the term they use is harmonize, harmonize national law with customary law. This is an incredibly difficult, problematic process because ultimately you cannot, I would suggest, there's no way that you can resolve logically uh, the rights of individuals with the rights of collectives at certain moments in time. And gender, as was mentioned earlier, becomes a particular issue. If you say that a collective has the right to determine law in a given space, and that collectivity has a different understanding of gender than one that is based in individual rights, there's going to be a tension there. And this is something that uh, is still being worked out in the region, um, is something that people are trying to grapple with. So in short, Latin America is a region that is grappling with if and how one can form what some would call a multicultural um, democracy. I also have called it a post-liberal democracy, one that would grant individual rights as part of this democratic project, but also merge them with collective ones that seem to be in tension with many of these uh, presumed liberal rights. Latin American states are battling this out right now. Um, and this is, this is one of the contemporary projects, I think, that speaks to the issues that Miguel has raised for us on this panel. So I want to thank you again, and I look forward to um, the, the discussion that's going to follow. As, as we've done before, what I'd like to ask is maybe we can get a couple of questions to begin with, and then uh, Professor Power and also the commentators can respond to those, and then we can continue if we if we have time. We do have half an hour before lunch. Uh, we're going to ask you to speak into these mics. That might seem a little silly because we can all easily hear each other, but this is being webcast uh, apparently successfully. Um, and we're, without the mics, uh, the people who are listening to it on the web won't be able to hear. So, questions. Yes. 
Hello. Uh, my name is Joyce Malcolm. I'm a historian. Um, I have a comment about uh, Amy Chu's discussion and then one uh, for Samantha Power. Um, actually, this has been already addressed uh, by Chris Eigruber and Deborah Yasher, but shocking as it is, a minority has almost always controlled the majority in most states, and it would be very hard going back even 500 years in history to find some state where there was much more egalitarian control of the economy or of the politics of it. Um, historians have studied why these things change, and um, one of the uh, reasons sometimes given is that when people's expectations are, the groups, majority groups' expectations are uh, provoked and they think that things are going to get better, that's when they're more likely to rebel than when for centuries the French peasantry uh, remains downtrodden and hopeless. Um, there are also issues like control of the military, which I believe that uh, Lawrence Rosen mentioned. If you're going to be a minority in charge, you better have the military on your side, which I think is important. So I don't believe that that small group controlling things has much to do with capitalism or the global economy or even um, this push for democracy. And then um, a comment for Samantha Powers. This is on uh, your, your comment about the United States intervening in other countries and then pulling out and losing interest. And I think that that's fairly true. I mean, I think that our perhaps media keep moving us to the next issue and the next crisis and we don't know what's happening in Kosovo any longer. It's very hard to find out. Um, but I think that also the world is very impatient and won't let us stay. Um, I was in Australia a month after September 11th, and on virtually every telephone pole was a poster, and this goes to your comment about the left, claiming that we should leave Afghanistan alone. The picture on the poster was of women wearing burqas, and presumably the notion was that bad as things were under the Taliban, where a woman who wanted education had her feet chopped off, somehow we were going to make it worse if we intervened. Um, as far as Iraq goes, from talks that I've heard in um, security circles, I think the government's real intention was to stay and to treat Iraq like Japan and Germany after World War II. And through private conversations with nations in the area, what they wanted us to do, but publicly, was to stay so things would remain stable and Iraq would not disintegrate. However, once there, everybody wants us to leave immediately. So if we do try and stay until there's a stable government, we no longer have uh, the world opinion on our side. Everyone is you know, in a great hurry for us to leave, and we're unable to help stabilize the situation in the way we might like. Thank you. Thank you. Any others for this first round? Uh, my name is Bruno Bozacchi, I'm a physicist, so again, I'm not an expert, but there is some comment. Uh, we have the concept of democracy and market, and they can be a relatively good concept. However, we, uh, uh, I mean, to say at the end, it depends what kind of market, what kind of democracy. And we have historical realization that might not be as good as the idea of democracy and the idea of market. And as we have historically realized now, they are controlled by a minority that, as was said, 
does not care at all. The large majority of people have no future. That is there. Uh, democracy, for example, fine, you are free to go and vote, but the way in which you vote is controlled by the media, which are in the hand of a minority. Uh, the people we elect vote at the end, as the lobbies suggest, and they also are controlled by minority. And as for market, uh, one thing is the real market with uh, human dimension. So the price of coffee, for example, should be decided in the street of Mombasa, in the market of Mombasa. Instead, it's decided in London by people that don't even know what a plant of coffee is. So when we discuss market and democracy, we should be very careful because we can say your market is good, democracy is good, those people don't want democracy. But people have very good reason not to accept democracy in the form which is offered to them now. Yes, Arthur? Um, thank you, uh, Ms. Erica Gilson, Near Eastern Studies. Uh, I hear a wonderful vindication of uh, those that are for area studies. So all of the, yesterday as well as today, it seems like uh, reaffirmation for the, um, area studies wherever in the world. But uh, talking about particular ethnicities, I didn't hear anything mentioned about language, and I was wondering why. Language. Why don't we stop there for a second and let you well, I learned a very valuable lesson today, which is that the way to avoid criticism is to not get your act together in time to give anybody a paper ahead of time. <laughs> um, let me respond, if I could, to um, the, the comment question and, or comment, and then if I could also just say a word about a couple of the comments sure, that were made, if that's okay. Um, First, um, on this issue of, of follow-through um, and attention span, I'm, I, I wholeheartedly, as a, as a former journalist or sometime journalist, I agree with you that the journalists do leave after the bombs have fallen. Um, but there's a descriptive truth that we know about the media, especially in this country and especially over the course as it's evolved over the last 15 or 20 years, which is that media priorities are derivative. Um, we can lament it, but the priorities where editors deploy their troops uh, tend to mirror uh, uh, quite uh, directly where the priority is set in, in Washington. So we see this often, especially when one's thinking about prevention. And because one knows, of course, the journalists don't get in ahead of time, so they don't draw attention or build any kind of momentum you know, among Western democracies for doing anything before things get really, really violent. They only go, you know, the Fleet Street saying was, if it bleeds, it leads. You know, they wait till the blood has, uh, we wait till the blood has uh, been shed. It is derivative. There's just no question. What, what the, pri the priorities that are anointed and set in Washington have great bearing on where we go. But it is not the journalists who are altering lives um, with the interventions when they come about. So I think, um, you know, one of the things um, that, that can happen is that, for instance, if, if the claim was that the Congress, um, for instance, loses its appetite for funding nation-building efforts, there are all kinds of things that a willing and eager executive can do to regenerate interest in a place that the media has moved on from, such as you're sending high-level officials into a country, you know, so the media posse will follow, you know, sending high-level, you know, members of the cabinet or whatever in with congressional delegations. In other words, 
it, the fact that the media does um, pay more attention to bad things than good things or hard things and chronic things, I don't think absolves at all the executive branch or whatever administration we're talking about or the so-called international community in the form of UN contributors from the follow-through because they are the ones who have torn up the envelope of the world in the lives of these people. And I think even if you take Afghanistan, the fact, which I just learned recently, that the European Union has spent more since the mainly American uh, war there uh, on nation building and foreign aid is, you know, I mean, we're delighted that the European Union chooses to spend something, but is, I think, a symptom of one of the reasons we're in this mess in the first place in terms of our foreign aid policies and, and vectors and so on. Um, second, without belaboring it, I, I really also agree with you that, um, that we wanted to stay. The, kind, the class of cases that I was talking about, however, were not interventions brought about for strategic reasons. I mean, whatever one, it is true that the only reason left probably for going to war in Iraq is the human rights reason. Uh, you know, in the sense of the, you know, the terrorist connection being weak and the uh, weapons of mass destruction being uh, non-existent. Um, so it turns out that it is, will end up being a humanitarian intervention or nothing, as it were. Um, but the reality is the, the class of cases uh, that I'm talking about in terms of follow-through are not those where economic resources are at stake, where strategic interests and security interests are seen to be at stake. There, of course, you know, when we want something, we stay and we do it. What I'm talking about is when we kind of back in, which is what we tend to do when it's merely, you know, the welfare of the citizens in these countries at stake. Um, and then um, thirdly, your point about Australia um, and, and as the left and whatever and skepticism about intervention and even on, in the instances where we do back in for mainly humanitarian reasons where a constituency is mobilized in the United States or elsewhere, the fact that no one will ever assume a good motive when a bad motive will do Again, I strongly agree with you, but it turns out I think that the answer is um, is not it, it, the answer. Actually, is to ha is to ask that question about why that suspicion exists, and and really to think more carefully about the cost of what I've come to call the alacartism, certainly of American foreign policy, but of every state's foreign policy. That is, this belief that you can kind of go in for the right reasons or you know try to do the right thing in the moment, but that like for instance if in going into Iraq, you want to, you know, make the case that overthrowing such a monster, genocidal dictator, et cetera, is the argument you're going to make. You do have to acknowledge why you're backing repressive regimes, not necessarily who committed similar human rights abuses, but where, you know, tyranny is at work. That is, you, 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 can, you can do something to strengthen your case for staying if you actually shore up some of the perceptions, I think, of inconsistencies. Now, what I'm, this is obviously structural and isn't going to happen anytime soon, but it's not an accident that people are suspicious, is my point. And I think, again, transparency is important. Just two brief comments in relation to what I heard after um, um, my presentation, um, and I think um, really interestingly a link between your um, comments about Islam and about culture and custom and the local coinciding with um, Chris's comments about um, about the sort of virtue of the American uh, stymied constitutional system that is the notion of checks um, and vertical checks in terms of civil society and um, you know local and state and then and then horizontal checks in terms of independent judiciaries and upper houses and lower houses and so on what's really interesting and I mean I would love to hear more actually about the extent to which you feel 
but rather than thinking about, um, you know, as, as you've suggested, reconciling seeming incompatibles, um, that the answer is actually Madisonian, that it is that you will have competing ambitions and competing versions of how Islam, let's say, should be interpreted in a different place or how women should be interpreted, and such that actually in the interest of, um, you know, absorbing those competing ambitions, factions, <laughs> um, to get back to the Federalist Papers, that that, rather than any deference to universal norms, is actually going to be the way that the, that the not the universal necessarily, but that a lowest common denominator, um, you know, non-particularist, not entirely parochial version will be all you can be left with. Now, the alternative to that, of course, is violence, which is where, where people fight for their custom and their local. But it did strike me as actually being quite similar to one of the forms of the checks that we have in our system. Um, and then, I guess, uh, second, um, and this gets to maybe Amy's, uh, or, or actually more the point that Deborah made about it's not the market that is inherently takes these forms, but it's the form of the market that we have been imposing or that people have been choosing. Um, it does strike me again, in line with Chris's comments, that um, that the founders were so ingenious in thinking, in acknowledging that we can't trust ourselves in having a very pessimistic view of human nature, a very realistic one probably, about how we would grab for ourselves and the danger of the tyranny of the majority and the need to have checks. And yet, perhaps because of the peculiar circumstance of the moment or a very sui generis set of historical facts, they were not thinking about that same self-interest and that same, you know, sort of amoral at best human being in government with regard to foreign policy. <laughs> so we don't have a Bill of Rights checking our behavior abroad. In fact, the very sort of short-termism, self-interest over values, you know, all the things they knew would be at work domestically, uh, all we have are international human rights instruments. So to Deborah's point, you know, as it happens, we're, there is an ability now to demand of other countries things that simply advance, you know, our, our version of what we need for ourselves without embedding actually consideration of the very principles we know we need to, to hold us back, not just for the sake of morality or values or liberalism, but in the long-term interest actually of all of us. Um, and then th third and, and uh, final point back to you, um, your point about engagement is just so, it's such a powerful, um, you know, instance of the kind of, the way the state is an anthropomorphized, you know, version of individuals and the way that, that in the Middle East there could have been this sense of affront and abandonment in a way, giving rise to anarchy. It's so, such a powerful um, image. And I guess what I wonder is if the alternative um, to abandonment and disengagement is engagement, how we reconcile that with um, just sort of the following seeming paradoxical kind of set of qualities to the international order or specifically to the international order or to America's relationship with other countries. And those paradoxical qualities are, are I think, right now, that actually if you go to Washington, there's a two new kind of murmurings of recognition. One is, you're right. We shouldn't have disengaged. That was crazy. We thought, we looked at the Middle East and we said, why would, I mean, Bush is quite simple, actually, and guileless in his way at times. He says, well, remind me why we would associate ourselves with that disastrous peace process that never pays any dividends. You know, what's in it for us? Well, we're out of there. Okay, well, obviously, uh, back to the, the boomerang point, I think, that you made, that, the, um, that it comes back to haunt you and that, in fact, you, you are engaged even if you don't want to be, and therefore you're going to be implicated even if you're certain instances not, never mind the fact that we're not neutral in the region in the first place, so that that creates a form of involvement even without doing anything in the moment. 
So there's that recognition. Then there's the age of liberty recognition. That is, in that speech, the most radical uh, acknowledgement of the, the past mistake of compartmentalizing American interests and American values, stating outright that you know for too long, for 60 years, we believed that effectively repressive states could be reliable allies and partners and advancers of American self-interest. And lo and behold, we now understand that that can't be so. We have to begin to have a conversation. I mean, so first of all, I think it was rare was to acknowledge any past mistake ever, uh, which is something U.S. leaders hardly ever do, not just people like Bush. Um, but two, um, to sort of say, we've got it, they have to go together. Like, we will not be safe in the long term unless we see liberalization, democratization, and so on. So on the one hand, you have this, like these epiphanies that are kind of interesting. On the other hand, you have the fact that the United States is seen as an imperialist, an occupier, a liar now, um, or perhaps always, and thus um, America's legitimacy to speak out on, the, on behalf of engagement and liberalism has been gravely undermined, not just by this administration, but by a, a sequence such that you get um, reformers, at least in my experience, you know much more about the region, but um, saying, again, thanks but no thanks, you know, uh, Saud Ibrahim's wife coming here and saying, yes, my husband is in prison, yes, he's a great reformer, we've noticed that now you're willing to expend serious foreign policy capital trying to convince Mubarak to let him out of jail. Please don't, because Mubarak, because of the level of anti-Americanism in Egypt, cannot be seen to be caving to American pressure. Those kinds of examples, the moderates in, in, in Kuwait being virtually swept out of office on, by virtue of uh, you know, the hardliners using the affiliation with the United States, you know, the Iranian example of, of dissidents being brand, branded in that way. And, and so here's this tension. There's actually people starting to get what you're talking about a little bit maybe, maybe I'm too credulous myself, but uh, they're the people that one would be rooting for, let's say, in these societies whose, whose lives it is and whose job it is are actually sort of saying maybe engagement isn't the right answer after all. Maybe we'd sooner deal with the, the affront culturally that you described than actually have American, more American meddling. Did you guys, the three of you, want to add something at this point, or you want to take more questions? I thought maybe I would just say something in response to the question about uh, language that was raised and how that fits into the uh, picture, because it's certainly something we haven't um, spoken to, I just wanted to offer uh, three very general observations uh, about it. The, the first is, is um, to agree with that, what I took to be the implicit premise under the question, that it's an important indicator of real difference that might need to be accommodated. So one of the uh, things that Anthony Ampia says in his very interesting work on identity in the United States is that uh, we are much more monolingual than some of the anxieties about uh, English as a second language, for example, would lead one to uh, suggest. And again, I think that makes our conditions uh, for the application of liberal, liberal principles easier than they would otherwise be. Uh, the second is, is to say uh, very briefly and in a hand-waving sort of uh, uh, way that I, I again think the right way to think about these issues as a matter of uh, normative political uh, justice uh, is through the lens of uh, individualism and individual interest. That is, uh, language matters and language rights matter, but they matter because they matter to uh, individuals. Perhaps that seems obvious, but uh, there are people who think of uh, languages uh, as uh, valuable entities that need to be um, uh, protected for the kind of their inherent interest, or the or, or because the group is just worth preserving, even if it might be better for the staff from the standpoint of individuals to facilitate a kind of bilingualism that might lead to the demise of the cultural or linguistic uh, minority. 
Um, and, and then the third observation is that there are a number of means for uh, respecting the, the rights of uh, individuals um, uh, ranging from uh, um, uh, A, for uh, learning of another uh, language to accommodation within a majority culture to various types of uh, federalism. Uh, these things are going to work better and worse in, in different kinds of countries with, with different – so I, I think immediately of – of, uh, of countries with relative peace, although not not exclusively so, but of you know, Canada and the uh, and the Quebecois and the, and uh, Belgium and uh, Switzerland have adopting various different kinds of uh, mechanisms for this. But again, the more radical the differences are, and the more other uh, cultural differences uh, that exist, uh, the harder it's going to be to apply any of these mechanisms. Go ahead. I'd just like to make three. Um Three quick points. Uh, one is to get back to this issue that, that um, you had raised about democracy and the, the ways in which people perhaps don't trust it, at least in its present form. And I just want to add one addendum to what's already been said, which is it's not always that people do not uh, want democracy in the, in the U.S. type. It's that even in the places where it has been pronounced, it's not always occurring in practice. And so there are many places around the world, particularly places where there's been a transition to democracy, where elections are being held, where civil rights are being proclaimed, where a whole slew of, uh, of um, mechanisms are supposed to be in place to give people the individual rights that are inherent in the liberal democracies that are being pronounced. But in practice, in practice, particularly in rural areas, particularly uh, amongst the poor, those things are not always in play. And so democracy at times gets a bad name precisely because, not just because the results are not acceptable to people, i.e. they're not getting the people they want into power, but because there's a sense that they're not fair. They're not fair and that if one is only looking at the elections that are taking place, you're not really getting a sense of the degree to which votes are being counted equally, number one, and two, whether or not those who are being elected are in fact being held accountable. So there, there's a multiple dimension that is associated with the concerns about democracy in places in particular where it's a new regime, um, it's the new regime in place. And this leads me to my second point, um, and one that uh, Samantha Power raised, which is really quite interesting. I believe you talked about the Afghan Constitution and the ways in which the Constitution itself has um, principles that, are in fact, are in tension with one another. And I think that in some ways, coming from the U.S. context where we think about checks and balances as a way to mediate between potentially conflicting uh, goals and different arenas where thinking about where sovereignty lies, there's a way in which that is slightly uncomfortable because we like logic and homogeneity, but it's slightly acceptable too because we can imagine institutions battling these things out in the courts through officials that we would elect and the like. And again, in parts of the developing world, this is in fact a challenge, which is that the institutions that are being created or the ones that are being inherited are not trusted. One of the reasons that the U.S. context can work, and it's part of the inexplicable, is that there is trust in the institutions. You might like the person who's in power, has been elected, and you might not like the person who's been elected, but you do have a sense that the next time around, there will be a chance to get your guy in or get your gal in. There's a, a hope that the institutions are more or less credible, that they're more or less legitimate, that they're more or less consistent, and that results are not predictable from, uh, from the start. Those are precisely the things that are not in play in many parts of Latin America and certainly in many parts of Africa and new democracies in Asia and the like. The sense that you can trust the institutions that have been constructed as part of the democracy and the state that's supposed to, to support it. And precisely when we're talking about individual collective rights being in tension with one another, 
this becomes magnified in quite significant ways if you think those institutions are dominated by, quote unquote, the other group. And the last point that I wanted to, to, to highlight is, again, this uh, building off of a point that um, Samantha had noted about the ways in which U.S. foreign policy is oftentimes perceived by those um, by those who are supposed to be the recipients of the, the goodwill or not goodwill of, uh, of that policy in place. And if I could, I'd like to give an example from Guatemala that's a slightly different context. I was living in Guatemala in the late 1980s, the height of the Cold War, concerns about the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. And I remember at the time I was reading the paper and there was an op-ed that said the United States is going to intervene in Nicaragua. And it was written by a very conservative politician in Guatemala. And I would have thought, he would have supported this because he was clearly anti-left, anti anti-communist, anti-Sandinista, pro-U.S. policies in so many different ways. And this was quite perplexing to me why someone who presumably shared the same goals as the United States vis-a-vis -vis the Sandinista regime would in fact oppose U.S. intervention. I couldn't get my mind right. Else. It was one of those moments where I felt quite naive that I had not. wrap it up. <laughs> All right, so the, the, the point here is that, the, the, that what became clear to me at that point was that people were concerned about sovereignty. And if not, if, the, if Nicaragua now, perhaps Guatemala next, precisely because of, to borrow your term, the sense of a la carte associated with U.S. intervention, under what circumstances will the U.S. intervene, not quite clear, other than this perception that it's quite strategic, that, there, that there's a sense of alliances built on against enemies, but that means that you can forsake those alliances and therefore a great deal of mistrust. So you can see why from, from the perspective of even those who support U.S. foreign policy, if you privilege sovereignty, number one, number two, you don't have a sense that those alliances will endure over the long term. And even under the short-term evaluation that intervention might be seen in your favor, you might not like the consequences of what that means for protecting your own sovereignty when you yourselves have, don't have a clean record. Uh, Samantha, whenever I think, and I don't as often as I possibly can, of George Bush's Age of Liberty speech, I'm reminded of the time someone asked Gandhi what he thought of Christianity. He said he thought it was a marvelous idea. Somebody should try it sometime. <laughs> Um, I think apropos a number of the comments that were made, apropos of my comments, uh, some very basic groundwork needs to be done by us scholarly types. For example, we tend to talk about, at least in the Middle East, I'll stick there for a moment, about these estates, and anything less sounds denigratory. Um, anthropologists sometimes have trouble getting permission to work in these places because they think we only work with people who are savage, brutish, nasty, dirty, and short. No, uh, you know, we actually work in more complex situations. But one could talk about a number of these, not just as sort of, you know, tribes with flags. I don't think it's quite that simple. But as really not quite states in the same way other kinds of states are states. They are a little bit more like paramount chieftainships. Uh, with kind of tribal ethos. Tribal ethos doesn't mean the same as tribal any more than Protestant ethic means like Protestant. It means, and it's really important, that each unit is a moral equivalent of every other unit, that there are all sorts of mechanisms for leveling devices. It means that there are all sorts of ways in which through ritual reversals, 
things are cut back down to a common level. It means that when you get right after the Iraq War, this kind of fitna, this kind of chaos, which also means allure, um, the opportunity to sweep the board and start the game all over again, you have to look at how the game of ingratiation is starting to be played again. Then maybe, and it's not just semantic, when one says that minorities are almost always in control of states, that's less the case in the Middle East, maybe because they're not states in quite that sense. They're a little bit more like paramount chieftainships, and one has to understand the nature of that kind of political structure and what globalization does to it. And sure, there are plenty of good reasons why people shouldn't uh, um, accept democracy in the form in which we offer it, but it may also be conceptualized in a somewhat different sort of way when it is taken in locally. And in that respect, I think there are many features of uh, Western democracy as limitation on government and of consensus decision-making in other forms that are actually quite consonant with some of the institutions in the Arab world. Language certainly does matter, uh, apropos the earlier comment. One of the things that's very characteristic about the Arab world, as you know only too well, is what linguists call a kind of code switching. People move back and forth between different languages and style of languages uh, with enormous rapidity and, and great uh, fluidity. And that's rather similar to the way they move in the social and cultural world. Very often in the Middle East, what looks like a revolution is really a rebellion. It's a desire to get into the system, not to change the system. They go off, they scream, they take over some place, and what do they want? They want one of their people as a minister in the government. Okay, they want to be able to play the game too, because being involved in the game, as opposed to turning your back on the game, is all critical. In, again, the Middle East, the, a lot of the individual's legitimacy depends on the acknowledgement of him by his enemy. Now, that also couples up with a very important traditional sort of limitation on power. You didn't try to absolutely destroy the other god because in no small part your legitimacy depended on you thinking that you were a, an important leader. Uh, to fail to appreciate those kinds of factors as they might fall into a particular kind of Madisonian factional relatedness in that cultural and historical situation would really be to miss the boat, and maybe that's why the call hasn't come from Washington to me. <laughs> and on that note, since it's almost 12 o'clock, we will stop. Uh, please uh, note that because uh, early flights for a couple of our participants in the last afternoon panel, we will start promptly at 2 o'clock, uh, and hopefully we'll end up by 4. Uh, there is lunch available for participants in inviting guests from George Schultz. Otherwise, we will see you at 2. Thank you very much. Yes.